Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. We are doing another uh, installment in our Weekly Suit Gundam The Origin series where we are going through Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin. This will be part two you'll hear later on today's show. But before then, there was some, uh, let's say, big news in the world of gaming. Maybe some of the biggest news ever in the world of gaming, certainly if you're only going by dollars. Well, if you're going by dollars, it's the biggest in the history of gaming. And that is Microsoft's acquisition of Activision Blizzard King for $69 billion dollars. Uh, we're going to talk about that. I don't have a whole lot of stuff this week, Sean. My stuff is mostly I've been keeping up with Persona 5. I am 83 hours in, and I have caught back up to the beginning of the game, for those who know Persona 5. So that means I only have one or two more full game's length of content to play through. <laughs> yes. No, I mean, now you're at the part where Persona 5 actually starts. Yes. <laughs> it's finally, it's going to get good. 83 hours in. No, Persona 5 is good all the way through. I'm having a blast with it. I am at the part of that game, Sean, where you're getting significant amounts of Sh- uh, Shuichi Keita dialogue. And uh-huh. oh my god. Yeah, you had you had no idea what you were missing uh, when you... Because, I mean, even if you had played it in Japanese originally, you still wouldn't have known because you hadn't watched Gundam at that point. But now you're getting like the full proper experience with that character. I know that that man... He is a Char. He is most definitely a Char, yes. Oh my god, Sean. Anyway, it's a great game. We're inching ever closer to the Persona 5 Royal Podcast, don't you worry. Um, but that's pretty much been my stuff this week. Sean, do you have anything to share with us? Uh, not a huge amount. Most of like the stuff I've been doing is all kind of connected to uh, Gundam, the origin stuff, because I've been reading the manga and all that, and we'll talk about all that stuff on, the pod- on that section of the podcast. Um, but I do want to do a quick update on the Kimetsu no Yaiba game because I finished that since um, last week. And my overall impressions on it haven't changed tremendously. I still think it's a, like th- I, it's a game that has a really good kind of foundation in its combat and the way it uses its characters and stuff. But the single player content is too light and I wish that there were more different kinds of modes. Um, but one thing that is fun, that if people are playing it, I would definitely encourage people to make sure you get all the way through to the end of the main story. Because the way they do the Mugen train arc is definitely the best part of the story. And that one is the one that, like, fits most nicely into, like, the pace of the story mode. Because the Mugen train story, which is the movie, is so direct. And there's not, like, much downtime between the fight scenes and stuff like that. Um, And so that uh, arc adapts really well into the game. And I think they do a great job of it. And it has a moment in it. That is that has one of my favorite objectives I've ever seen in a video game, um, where there's the part in Mugen Train where Tanjiro gets put into a dream where his family is still alive, and he realizes, uh-oh, this is like a trick, and is trying to sort of, this enemy is trying to lull me into a sense of security with this dream, and I have to run away from my family. Um, and so, like in the movie, in the manga, Tanjiro has to run away while his youngest sibling, Rokuta, yells after him, pleading him, like, don't leave, big brother. And it's completely heartbreaking. And then they give you control, and you have to, like, physically, as the character, run away. And then in the top left corner, which is where your objective is, your objective updates to 
uh, leave your family behind. Oh my god. <laughs> and I saw that, I'm like, that's, that is maybe the most brutal video game objective I have ever seen, is the game telling me to leave my family behind as I run away from this crying five-year-old boy. Leave your family behind. Wow, that's pretty great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so so it's a, you know, I, I, I wish that the Kimetsu Yaiba game was a bit better with single-player stuff, but when the game is good, it is quite good, Um, so... If you're a fan of the series, it is definitely a thing that's worth checking out. Uh, but pick it up on a sale would be yeah. my recommendation. I am. I'm looking forward to playing it at some point. Yeah. Mostly I've been doing Persona 5. I've been doing Gundam stuff. I've been doing some other stuff on the side that I'll talk about at some point. But uh, yeah, this was my first week of classes also back at university. So uh, doing some teaching, doing some work, trying to trying to hammer out dissertation plans. That's, that's fun and intimidating. So it sounds like the most fun thing in the world you know uh my dissertation plan right now which is not been approved or anything but it's the one i'm sort of playing with is like kind of nothing less than a, a fulsome history of anime from 1960 to now <laughs> so that should that's be a nice and ambitious project that's a manageable yeah. project yeah it's not it's not exactly that but it's kind of that um I'll have to, I honestly should swing it by you, Sean, at some point, because you know more about the subject than anyone I work with, so, um, but yeah. anywho, that is a off-the-podcast to, off topic, uh, maybe you'll hear about that in a couple of years. Um, in any case, uh, Sean, do you want to talk about some news? Yeah, let's, uh, what's, what's going on in the news, Jonathan? There's one thing going on in the, I mean, there's a lot of things going on in the news, as always, but in the world of video games and the stupid shit we talk about, um... I mean, it's pretty It's pretty simple in terms of the news itself, and then the implications are bigger, but Microsoft has acquired, or is in the process of, they have, they have made the offer, it's, uh, unless there was to be some antitrust scrutiny, which I don't think there will be, um, they are in the process of acquiring Activision Blizzard King, it's always easy to forget the King part of that, but yeah. King is part of Activision Blizzard, uh, for $68.7 billion, rounded up to 69 so you can have a chuckle, uh, they are acquiring... Activision Blizzard King for $69 billion, which is the biggest deal in the history of video games. It will mean Microsoft, which is Xbox, will now control you know franchises such as Call of Duty, Overwatch, Diablo, all the hits from Activision Blizzard. I Obviously, mean, this crazy ones like Crash Bandicoot and Spyro the Dragon. Um, oh like, shit! I've, obviously, there's like I don't know how the Tony Hawk deals work out because obviously there's a license thing, but you know Activision owns the Tony yes. Hawk franchise. They own Guitar Hero as well as like a million. If you like really dig in, they've got all the Sierra PC adventure games like King's Quest. Like like Activision is a as one of the oldest um companies in the history of video games is arguably the first third-party publisher that has ever existed in the entire industry and therefore by virtue of its tremendous age um as like a incredible stockpile of like historic ip for yes. video games which is probably one of is obviously one of the things that's attractive about that purchase from microsoft's uh point of view Absolutely. And I was going to say this obviously does come in the context. And I think reading between the lines would not be happening were it not for Activision yes. becoming significantly embattled over the last year with actual legal scrutiny into its culture of harassment, which came to another head this year when we learned, I mean, we knew, but we learned um, definitively that Bobby Kotick um, is very deeply engaged in that culture of harassment, and not in a good way, in a bad way. He's a bad guy, and he was not going to leave. Activision Blizzard King has 
been struggling in a whole lot of other ways. Like, clearly he is an incompetent leader on top of being a bad leader. Um, and so, you know, I, I think something like this was possible because of all of that. It is still tremendously big news. Uh, Sean, remember a couple of years ago in, like, the dregs of the Xbox One days where we wondered if Microsoft would even stay in this whole gaming thing? Yeah. Well, I mean, they were, they were definitely at a crossroads of, like, yeah. either you open up the war chest of Microsoft, which is one of the most, you know, successful companies in the world. It's one of the mega corporations that will eventually own everything. Um, and you fully commit to it or you pivot out of like the Xbox strategy. Cause the Xbox one was like a true disaster, um, for that brand and, and, you know, for, for Xbox in general. Um, and clearly the path that they have gone on is, let us be one of the mega corporations that owns everything in the world uh, by spending seventy billion dollars by by spending the by spending a quantity of money to, where it is very easy just to round it up at an additional two seventy billion because one billion dollars doesn't really make much of a difference in the scope of the sum of money that is the the incomprehensible sum of money that is seventy billion dollars. It's a fake amount of money. I mean, it's a fake yes. amount of money. It's that's that, that's money that doesn't exist. Uh -huh. It's fake. It's fake money at that level but yeah i mean there are so many implications to this but i do think that's the one i've been thinking about a lot sean is that i don't think it was crazy to wonder if microsoft was going to stay in this a couple of years ago because they're not a gaming company at their core they do a lot of different stuff honestly microsoft's biggest bread and butter is enterprise stuff when you look into mm -hmm. their actual numbers um and so they they often struggle i think in consumer facing products like look at their history of trying to get phone stuff off the ground you know they've they've been very very bad at that you know or, everybody or even loves earlier. them a zune you know the yeah zune that's was the, the joke thing i was gonna that make, really yeah. won the mp3 market back in the day yeah so you know i don't think it was ever a guarantee that xbox needed to be a thing going forward but clearly and and i think it helps that the xbox team has done very good work over the last couple of years, turning that ship around. It's a very healthy brand at this point. Um, but Microsoft, as you say, like the difference between Microsoft and a lot of other companies, like Sony is a big company. Sony is one of the biggest companies in the world. Microsoft, I was just double checking this this morning, is the second biggest company on earth by market cap behind mm -hmm. Apple. They are really, really big. I don't know if Sony could make a $70 billion purchase. I'm pretty sure no. they couldn't. That's like, I was checking, Definitely like, not. that's their annual revenue. So, like, um, that's the difference is that Microsoft just has, as you say, Sean, a, they have a Scrooge McDuck vault of fake money that they can pour onto things. And I think there were already hints that they were moving in that direction. The Bethesda acquisition was quite big. That was, like, 7 or $8 billion. But this is 10 times the previous biggest deal in the history of video games. Like, it's it's insane. I saw some people come like, oh, this is like Disney buying Marvel. No, it's not. No. Disney buying Marvel was $4 billion. Disney buying Star Wars was $4 billion. I think Pixar was $4 billion. Like, these, this, that was more like the Bethesda deal. This is kind of like Disney buying Fox, although with the difference that I don't think Microsoft plans to just shut down everything Activision is doing, um, and just so they can steal movie theater screens. That was Disney's way of, you know, swinging their money dick around. I do think Xbox is going to make use of all this stuff, but it does significantly change the video game landscape when one of the biggest third parties becomes a first party. Yeah, I mean, it's a cuz this is this is you know, this is the biggest thing that has happened in like video game news 
basically maybe ever like because this is this is where like the like trend towards um the consolidation in the industry that really started around 2008 when we moved into the 360 ps3 generation which is where the entire middle of the industry dropped out right that's where your thqs and your midways and that whole like i mean that's where the majority of third-party publishers that have existed in the history of the industry all died over the course of the 360 ps3 generation they either died or they were bought up by somebody else and consolidated into like a small handful of third-party publishers or the first parties nintendo sony and xbox um and then this is like taking out from the third-party industry like one of the primary pillars right i mean it is arguably was the biggest i mean the only other thing would be like take two um which is your like gta people but i would argue that activision pretty easily eclipses them both in terms of like historical importance and in terms of actual like market worth um with the call of duty factory that activision turned into um so it, it's like a it's a thing that is like impossible to get your mind around for me because it's like you, you have your pillars of third-party publishing are like activision ea ubisoft take two and they have been around for a long time they were like very stable extremely successful companies um but activision has had this like key vulnerability that popped up in the past couple of years which is this legal trouble that made it like um from the perspective of bobby kodak and the board of activision seem like a very good idea to say let's just make billions and billions and billions of dollars and just pocket that money um and, and just then run out of just, town just yeah, yeah and just walk away from it because why why bother like they're they don't give a shit about making video games they don't have pride in like the work or care about the culture or the art or anything like that they just want to make money because they're just capitalists um so at, at, and it's that's very much the same thing that happened with Zenimax. the only reason Zenimax sold was just because the people that owned the company didn't have any interest in actually doing the work of making video games and as soon as they saw like an easy way to cash out and make an inhuman amount of money that is unreasonable which is like one billion is unreasonable you try to start talking about tens of billions of dollars that's just insane um that creates this thing of where this whole company you know this whole pillar of the third-party publishing industry is gone and now if you look at what is left in terms of third-party publishers i mean you can count them literally on two hands and there's almost none um, you, you've, you're, there are not many other acquisitions that can be made in that space because the 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 space has been mostly emptied out over the past, past like fifteen years or so. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. Uh, yeah, what do you so what all do you have? I mean, you have U, Ubisoft, you have Take Two, you have Sega. What else are we even dealing with at this point? Yeah. So if you do like the Western ones, right, are Ubisoft, EA, Take Two. Um, and that's like generally it like in like for like big ones obviously we have stuff like devolver digital and annapurna that that are third-party publishers but they only deal with you know what we call indie games which obviously they can't be indie games if they're published by definition but whatever like the thing the verbiage we generally use so they it's, don't it's sort deal. of the equivalent of like an art house label of for film you know yeah it's, exactly yeah. so they don't deal in big budget stuff so they're kind of in a different space you can argue whether or not some companies like Epic or CD Projekt Red, how they fit into that space, because they, while they technically are third-party publishers, they only ever publish games that they internally develop, and so they kind of occupy a slightly different role in the space. But if, yeah. even if you throw them in, 
it doesn't change the overall number that much. And then you have your handful of Japanese third-party publishers that are still around, which would be Capcom, Konami, which still technically exists, Koei Tecmo, Bandai Namco, um, and... The, Sega, like I said. Yeah, yeah. And the, yeah then Sega, yeah, because you just mentioned that one. Yeah, and then that's about it. You know, Katakawa Publishing owns FromSoft... Uh, they they're so they're technically a third party publisher, uh, but I did not know that. Yes, uh, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. So, but there's like almost nothing. Like like the if you look up on Wikipedia, there's a list that Wikipedia has of like publisher video game publishers, and they're like highlighted in three different colors. One color for if they have been like basically no longer exist. One color if they have been bought up, and then they're just like highlighted in white um if they are like an independent third-party publisher and you scroll down that list and there's like there are more of those are just like small visual novel labels that exist in japan than there are like actual like big profitable like classical video game publishers because the yeah. that market's almost completely gone it's pretty crazy and so there's that side of this to talk about which is just the industry looks very different than it did 10, 20 years ago, right? Yeah. Then there's, I mean, let's talk about the Microsoft side of it. Their strategy has clearly, like, in the waning days of the Xbox One era, like, they did make a couple of purchases that weren't, like, the biggest high-profile things on Earth, but the kind of stuff you would normally expect a company like this to make. Like, Playground Games, buy them, obviously. They make a bunch of yeah. Xbox games, why not? That kind of stuff you know, building up some teams and, like, very clearly, like, looking like they were maybe going to try to play Sony's game a little bit of having more first-party devs. That made sense. But that's a long-term time investment. So then it becomes, well, okay, while they're working on that stuff, what else do we do for this? And I think that strategy has clearly shifted from just, like, trying to catch up to Sony to, I would say, they're playing a pretty fundamentally different game than Sony at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, with now owning Bethesda and Activision, which to say they own Bethesda and Activision means they own like 20 different, uh, you know, like so many different studios and developers and, and hundreds of IPs and all this stuff. And that's a very fast thing. You can, you know, all the Bethesda stuff is already in Game Pass. A lot of that Activision stuff is going to be in Game Pass soon. It's an, a way to kind of like flood the market. And I've also thought about it this way because, you know, I, I still think there's a discussion to be had. I think there's a lot of people sure like, oh, all these things are going exclusive. I don't think that's a safe assumption for certain franchises. I don't really know if they would move Call of Duty just exclusive because I do wonder if like, you know, Sony's way of selling consoles is to is is almost like you can think of it like HBO, you know, mm -hmm. like it's it's why do you subscribe to HBO? It's not because there's a million shows every day, it's because, you know, Every couple of weeks or months, they're going to premiere a new high-profile show, and not every single one of them you're going to love or is going to be to your liking, but they're all going to be of a pretty high quality, and they're all going to have a certain kind of like sensibility about them, right? And that's and it's curated, and I think that's the PlayStation sensibility with their first-party games, and that's what makes you come play, you know, PlayStation is because you want to play God of War, and you want to play Ratchet and Clank, and you want to play The Last of Us, and there's a certain, you you expect a certain production value and, like, integrity to that, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's also roughly what Nintendo does. N Nintendo is a little more brand-driven in that sense, but, like, that's roughly what Nintendo does. Um, and then Microsoft, I think, I feel like their plan at this point is to outflank everyone else by just owning so much of the industry that whether or not you buy an Xbox or not, they still win. This is why I feel like 
I don't really understand the sensibility of pulling Call of Duty off of PlayStation because that's a win, 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 win for Microsoft. You're buying it on PlayStation? Cool, you're giving them 60 bucks. You're buying it on PlayStation, then you realize, oh, well, it's 60 bucks here. I could just go play it on Game Pass over here. Win, win for Microsoft. Like, that's what I mean by outflanking everybody, you know? And that seems to be mm-hmm. kind of the larger strategy here at this point. Yeah, like, I definitely think with Call of Duty, it could go... I think it really could go either way. Like, I think yeah. for sure the next couple of years, Call of Duty will stay multi-platform because because Sony has had marketing deals and stuff with Activision for like yes. 10 years plus at this point around Call of Duty that that we have to keep in mind, there are at least two Call of Duty games in active development currently, right? And yeah. this deal has not technically gone through. It's going to take at least a year for this deal to actually get fully finalized. So there's going to be some... You know, and there was like that one very, very carefully worded tweet by Phil Spencer about like we we are going to honor our deals and and we are clear in our desire to keep Call of Duty on PlayStation. It's just like a well, that's not a commitment to anything. That's not actually saying anything. <laughs> it's just a very good PR way of like making everyone happy and not worry about whether or not Call of Duty is going to go exclusive. So I think for a few years, Call of Duty is definitely going to be multi-platform because it kind of needs to be. But I'm going to guess that Microsoft has, like Phil Spencer has in interviews, expressed a desire to sort of change the strategy around Call of Duty, where Activision has for a long time at this point been primarily a like Call of Duty factory. Um, and they have a lot of developers um, like Toys for Bob, um, like Raven Software, that are just Call of Duty support studios, right? Because you need the complexity of making a new Call of Duty game every single year as video games become more difficult and expensive to develop means you just need more and more people on there to solve that problem. And and Activision really pioneered that like development cycle of having a couple of primary studios that like hand off responsibility for the franchise and then like this orbit of support studios that touch and work on all the games and the map packs and whatever like support they do afterwards and warzone and all this and and this kind of like you know whole ring of other developers that work on that stuff that is very much a model that ubisoft adapted um as well and i think that microsoft is probably not interested in because they don't really need call of duty to be an annual franchise i think it's in their interest to take those developers and have them work on other projects to have a broader line of content that can come out more regularly because that's what you want if you have a subscription service like game pass and once it moves into that and if call of duty is no longer the annual franchise then i'm i i'm not particularly positive and i i suspect that um, Call of Duty would no longer be on Sony. Um, I right. think that eventually Xbox is still going to want to suffocate a certain amount of like Sony's access in the market because it is still to Microsoft's benefit to be more dominant in the console business. And and Sony's never going to put like xCloud streaming or whatever on PlayStation. Like that's just never going to happen. Um, so they're going to want to keep everyone firmly in the xbox ecosystem the xbox marketplace because that's very much what it is at this point is like a services fight um and you don't win the services fight by letting people play your games on other consoles that don't support your actual service um and so that's why i think eventually i think we'll have the transition period where where some of this stuff call of duty will be multi-platform and then eventually i think it's all going to end up being xbox exclusive in like five or six years with the, with the caveat that Xbox exclusive means something very different than Nintendo or Sony exclusive. Sure. Because Xbox exclusive means also on PC. Yes. For now, it means also on Steam. I actually think that's a real open question how long that continues. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but yeah, there's, it's, it's a really weird set of affairs. And, and, you know, and, and what you just said, like that strategy, that's, that's right. And that strategy also comes from like, Phil Spencer isn't Bobby Kotick. He's someone who actually wants to make video games, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's going to be a difference. And, and, you know, I do think then the, the kind of big third, big pillar of this conversation, I mean, there's more pillars than just that is also like Activision and, Part of what makes this a weird thing to react to is that there is, I will admit, my first thought when I saw this news was a little bit of relief for the people who work at Activision. <laughs> like, Kodak mm -hmm. will be gone from everything we've seen so far. It sounds like he and all the execs are leaving when this deal goes through. And then they will work at a place that, like, wants them to make actual video games. And, like, hopefully there will be more room for, for some positive things. Um... I certainly better than under the fucking chuckle fucks they've been working with now. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's, it's a sorry state of affairs when I guess that's what counts as relief, but still. Yeah. Cause it is, I mean, you know, it, cause Activision was a sinking ship in some ways. Right. I mean, like, because you have on the one hand, you have all the harassment stuff. And then on the other hand, you also have like, even if that stuff didn't exist, you have, Activision's like whole business strategy I think was eventually a bubble that was going to burst like yeah. like they just didn't put out many video games that weren't Call of Duty um and at a certain point like it, it became very rare for you to get the occasional Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2 or like Crash Bandicoot 4 um like they did occasionally do other things with their properties and with their developers but it's one of the things of like, you know, they used to have their partnership with Bungie and they used to publish Destiny and then that fell apart because like Destiny's live service model that Bungie wanted for the game didn't fit in Activision's like you need this boxed yearly annual release and you need to fit like you have to fit into the factory in this like right. pre-designed way because we are a video game factory. Um, and like, so I'm, I am glad that that like mentality is being dismantled or like hopefully it is dismantled um like it's still we still like need to see exactly what will happen and how activision blizzard will be integrated into uh, microsoft but assuming as i think is very likely that that kind of mentality is dismantled um developers are allowed a more leeway in picking what titles they want to make and having a broader diversity of titles like i think that certainly in like the short term after this deal this will result in like better conditions for those workers and more interesting video games coming out of those studios like i think that's 100 true and that's nice but i also think there's like but like the bigger thing that overshadows all of that is to me like the crushing despair of looking at like everything that's happening in movies and seeing the exact same same thing happening in video games and feeling like it's only a matter of time before like again there aren't many more of these kinds of acquisitions that can be made and I, Microsoft's not going to be done, right? Like that's the thing about capitalism is it's like it's not about it's not about profit, it's about growth, um, or it's about like your expected like idea around what growth looks like for your company. It's about the line going up. It's yes. the line's yeah. got to go up, and yeah, like yeah, and exactly. and that and that can't happen forever because that's not how anything works. And eventually, you've just yeah. consumed everything that exists and are no longer making anything. Um, and that's what it feels like has basically been happening in movies. Um, certainly in like the like the Hollywood like big scale like expensive movies, it's basically happened, um, and will continue to get worse. Certainly in that space, 
and it feels like it's going to take a little bit longer in video games because video games are like currently a more competitive industry because because like Microsoft is still in third place in terms of revenue behind Nintendo and Sony. So it's like, yes. you know, they've got a lot more ground to try to make up um, for and for like these deals to start like getting the money. But eventually they will be number one like they have to be like if you're spending 70 billion dollars you're eventually you're going to be number one because you can't afford to be anything but number one or you'll go out of business i mean that's the yeah yeah and they're just going to keep on eating up everything else that exists in this space um until there are like are no third-party publishers i mean we're really not that far away from the reality of like third-party publishing just kind of not being a thing that exists unless it's something that like you know amazon or apple or google or tencent like just own that entire space which is the other possibility that other companies that so far other than tencent which is very hands-off with their acquisitions but like amazon and google and apple anytime they've tried to get into the gaming space in a serious way they've completely failed um but if but if they want to throw that kind of money around they could and just buy up like a huge chunk of the remaining third-party publishing industry and become that is the only way third-party publishers i think even survive for the next 10 years yeah I mean, Apple's weird. Apple has their Apple Arcade thing, which has done decently well, um, but it's a it's sort of a weird, like sort of almost like indie game space, mm-hmm. and it's not. It's some of it is Apple giving funds for people to develop games, but a lot of it is like buying stuff for that this like little boutique service. So they're in a, a different kind of window right now. Yeah, I don't know, um, and it's weird because again, as we say, like Nintendo is not in the business of buying other big companies. They're not. They're Nintendo going to Nintendo, right? Yeah. And then I've heard the things like, oh, now who's Sony going to buy about this? And again, Sony can't go buy an Activision. They're just not that big. They're, Sony is really big, but there's a difference between really big and Microsoft. Um, yeah. And yeah. Sony's never purchased a publisher. Um, like, like, And I think it's a thing that when I see these conversations, I and this is something we talked about in the ZeniMax one, is I get very frustrated with like people equate buying Microsoft buying Double Fine or Sony buying Insomniac as the same thing as Microsoft buying Zenimax or Microsoft Yeah, it's buying a very Microsoft different Blizzard. thing. They're completely different. Like buying up one developer and that kind of consolidation like is generally speaking fine. I mean, it's a very natural process and you have new developers pop up all the time. There are more development studios that currently exist than have ever existed in video games because of like the indie space and you can have your like small studios of, of a couple dozen people can also thrive in this business. Um, so it's like developers are one thing, but publishers are another and like publishers are where it becomes the, the competition and like the monopolizing thing of these aren't just other people developing games. These are other people that are like supporting in other avenues for developers in the broader market to go to in Activision or an EA or a Zenimax or whoever and get their games published through them. And like, that's a really necessary part of the ecosystem of video games is to have that not also be a thing that's controlled by people who control the the services that those games appear on and the hardware platforms that those games appear on. Like that's what monopolization is. And that's why the publishing thing is like scary to me is because that is a way of kind of like the Fox acquisition in movies. You're just like, completely ripping out a whole section of your direct competition and just owning it now and that's unsettling it is it is unsettling yeah um yeah we haven't seen sony make a move like that 
they've they've recently done some acquisitions in Japan or around or or like with you know sort of Japan adjacent stuff like the Crunchyroll buyout and stuff like that. But um, I don't know if if Sony were ever to do it, I would suspect it would be like with Sega or something. But like I don't think we again we don't know what that would look like because they haven't really moved into that space of trying to be a monopoly. Um, you know, an important thing there being they're not an American company. <laughs> they are a Japanese company. They play a little differently. Um, yeah, it is. I do think, Sean, it is exactly what you said. Of like, this felt like what is what feels scary about it is how much it feels like the movie mentality and like the mentality of a lot of other industries now coming for video games, and that feels bad. Yes, uh, and it's a thing that like. You know, it feels like it's kind of inevitable in any ways. Like, in any way, like, I don't, you know... Like, if if Microsoft didn't buy Activision, I'm sure, like, Amazon or Google or someone would have eventually come calling. Um, yeah. Which is part of, like, the reasoning of, of Microsoft wanting to buy it. And if, if like, you, you limit your, like, vision of the future to what, like, hellscape of, like, mega corporation owns everything in the video game space, well, Microsoft's probably better than Amazon or Google... Um, it's better but, because the people who work at Xbox know what they're doing and want to make video games. Like yeah. that's the difference. Is that like I mean the I people trust that this... work at Xbox now though. Like that's always yeah, the other that's, thing. That's is, like, true. Yeah. Phil Spitzer's not going to be the head of Xbox forever. You know, like no, like none of these companies are the good guys in the short term. Microsoft is the, is like the you know the lesser the lesser of all the evils available. Um, but but like also you know. This they spent seventy billion dollars buying Activision Blizzard. Like, let's contextualize that quantity of money for a second because it is something that it is so unfathomable. Like, seventy billion dollars is the GDP of Costa Rica. Seventy billion dollars <laughs> is the amount of money that the U.S. federal government uh, budgets to the Department of Education every year. Um, like roughly for the past few years. So this is like this isn't what you think of as like corporation money. This is like government like like. Like the the GDP of a small nation, or like a significant portion of like the budget of, of like America's national budget, if you ignore the military side of it, which is the majority of America's national budget. But the stuff of the budget, America's national budget, that goes to things that are actually useful, seventy billion dollars is a huge quantity of money in that sphere. Like the James Webb Space Telescope, which is like a fifteen-year-long project and the biggest space telescope ever developed, um, one that's been in development for so long. It just launched last year in, at the end of December um, that, you know, I did a project on it when I was in an astronomy class I took at CU Boulder. Um, that entire project cost $10 billion over the course of about 15 years um, to develop the most advanced space telescope in the history of the human race. It was one-seventh of the deal um, of what Microsoft just paid to own Activision Blizzard. So, like, there's a certain amount of the, like, when we talk about, like, a Phil Spencer, we talk about this kind of stuff of, you know, Microsoft likes to edge itself out as like, oh, we're just like you. We also were the game. We're also gamers, you know, Phil Spencer being like, oh, and I was looking through and like all these amazing IPs. I think they own Hexen. I'd love for to make a Hexen. And I look at that and then I also think, yeah, but if you spent the $70 billion, like you could make significant progress if you spent it wisely on like, you know, fighting against global warming on you know fighting against world hunger against fighting the fucking like pandemic right now like 70 billion dollars towards yeah. vaccines and giving masks to people and all that kind of stuff like that would uh you know that could save millions of lives 
but instead we spend $70 billion not making anything new, not creating new development studios in the in the gaming space, not hiring new people or anything like that. We spend $70 billion to take this giant massive thing that exists over here and move it so that now it exists over here. And that's what they spent um, what is uh, 1.5 million times the annual salary that I got at my old job, which is a funny thing. <laughs> 1.5 million times is all that's already like an insane thing. I could have worked for 1.5 million years at my old job, which is longer by like two times than the human species has existed. And then I would finally meet the exact quantity of value that Microsoft paid to move Activision Blizzard over to its headquarters. Sean, I, I just want to thank you for putting this in perspective for us because I think you are correct that that is a missing uh, context in so much of this conversation. And I also want to throw one last stat at us to uh, to uh, put this in context, Sean. Uh -huh. Do you know how much the Department of Housing and Urban Development has estimated it would cost to end homelessness in the United States? No, how much, Jonathan? $20 billion. Mm-hmm. Less than less than one third of this, Microsoft could have bought a billion other things and also solved homelessness in the United States. They could have built Xbox houses, twenty billion dollars worth of Xbox houses, and they're free. And every one of them comes with an Xbox and a subscription to Game Pass, and homelessness is solved. And it wouldn't have cost that much more than them buying Activision. Yeah, so it's it's the thing that like it's it is the thing that's very easy to get lost when you think about this stuff, because seventy billion dollars is an insane quantity of money. Like it's the scale is fucking is completely fucked up because the seven billion dollars with like Zenimax is already an insane quantity of money. This is ten times that. You've got to put an entire zero on that fucking thing to get here, um, and it's like for what <laughs> for why like what it's it really it's that thing of you just you know you got to really stare into the void for a while and feel the existential despair when you see a number like $70 billion get thrown around for video games. Meanwhile, we can't, we can't let poor people have money. That's, that's the U S Congress's uh, official stance. Don't, don't let those poor people have money or jobs. Fuck them. Can't, can't forgive any of those student loans. You know, no, that would be too expensive. Fuck. Fuck. God damn it, Sean. Fuck everything. You want to talk <laughs> yep. about some fucking Gundam? At least that makes sense. Yeah, let's stop talking about this depressing shit. And let's talk about some super rad shit. Let's talk about Mobile Suit Gundam, The Origin. Hello and welcome to Weekly Suit Gundam, the special bonus podcast brought to you by the folks at the Weekly Stuff Podcast. I'm Sean Chapman. And I'm Jonathan Lack. And we are here... One week later, oh my god, in an actual weekly episode of Weekly Suit Gundam to talk about uh, Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin 2, Artesia's Sorrow, the second episode of the Mobile Suit Gundam OVA series adapting the manga of the same name by Yoshikazu Yasuhiko. Um, and, and we're in for another really good episode because they're all good episodes um, and I'm, I'm very excited to talk about this today, Jonathan. I am too. This is... this. I you know I think for at least the the first couple episodes um, I haven't rewatched all of them yet. I think this thing just gets better as it goes along. Mm -hmm. And part two is fantastic. Part three is fantastic, uh, which we'll we'll talk about next week. Obviously, I am very excited to break down this one. This one is particularly heartbreaking. 
<laughs> yes, as as the title implies, it is um, aptly named. That is very true. A very aptly named one. But before we we talk about Artesia Sorrow, I've got I've got some stuff to talk about on the podcast because I have I have been on a Yoshikazu Yasuhiko binge. I guess one could call it good uh, because. I have currently caught up to where we are in the Mobile Suit Gundam: The Origin manga. Uh, Holy shit! I have read, I have read ten volumes of the manga because I think I had read the first two when we recorded the last episode. So the past week, I've read ten volumes of the manga, which is a lot because uh, it and, is because they are longer than in like. And I'm reading the Japanese version, so I'm going by the Tankoban um, numbering. Uh, but even like the Tankobans are longer by about fifty pages on average than a normal Tankoban. So it is it is a it is a lot of manga. Yeah, I was just going to say, you're reading the, the Tankobon, which is the original 24-volume um, release. Um, if you are reading the uh, Perfect Edition, which is what we got in the United States, just cut any number Sean says by half, and that's they, they put two in every one of these. So the end of Volume 10, where you said, is the end of Volume 5 of uh, yes. the, the Perfect Edition, which I have here on my desk. I was looking through, because I didn't think you had gotten that far, Sean, I had done a bunch of recon to uh, make some little notes for, for this episode and the next one we're recording about things that were different um and stuff like that but hey you've read it too so now we can talk sean how do you feel finally basking in the glow of what honest honestly i believe is the greatest manga i've ever read yeah it's definitely it's definitely up there in terms of like i would say like expand the manga to like comic books right um and just in general like eastern and western but yeah i mean it's it's definitely up there there is a truly virtuosic quality to the art um in the way it's like and it's specifically it's like it's the art is one thing but it's like the paneling and the pacing of pages and stuff yeah. like that like yoshikazu yasiko's ability to replicate um pacing that exists in the anime and like create that same feeling with what is like one of the most frequently heavily decompressed stories i've seen in uh manga which uh, decompressed in like the terms of like comic book storytelling means like um, something that where you use more panels to this like depict smaller segments of time. So highly compressed um, sequences in a comic book would use a small number of panels to depict, um, or the, would use a panel to depict like a large chunk of time with lots of things happening implied between panels. Uh, Gun of the Origin is frequently hyper decompressed using yes. individual panels to show like small changes in character facial expressions sometimes three or four panels in a row and it's like very frequent technique and it's a thing that captures so much of like the pace and the style and the feel of the anime and then also is able to think replicate a lot of what that does in the anime for the characters and bring that over into the manga um and it's it is a hugely impressive um yeah piece of like craftsmanship yeah, and I was talking about a little bit of that last week, and then also you now have a better sense of sort of the scope of how he tells the story, and mm -hmm. it is just, it's also a very smart adaptation. Um, you know, you've gotten far enough that you know he moves Jaburo, uh, he moves Jaburo up before Odessa Day, and part of yeah. that is because he has a much firmer sense of the geography of Earth and their journey, and that's the kind of stuff that I'm like, yeah, I love all of that. I love that, like, there's a lot of, like, placing the story in real places, and so you have a real sense of, like, the, the like, physical grounded nature of this journey they're on, and there's stuff like that that's just so cool. Yeah, um... It's it's awesome. Like I don't want to go too in depth on that because I feel like we we should just have eventually an episode that's just we talks will. about the yes. manga, yeah, in general. Um, and and I should also make it clear this was not a thing that like I set out with this idea of 
I want to make sure I catch up and get up to that point in the manga. Like, cause I looked at that and thought, well, that's going to be completely impossible. Like I more wanted to make sure I had finished reading it by the time we got the end of this. So we could do and talk about the manga in general. Um, but yeah, I just got so sucked into it. Um, that, that, um, I almost by coincidence, cause I wasn't even trying to, I ended up catching up, um, to where we are, um, covering so far in, 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 in what we're doing. Uh, but that's not the only thing I've done, Yoshikazu Yasiko related, because I have also watched um, Giant Gorg, which is the 1984 TV anime that he directed um, that is available on Crunchyroll. And it had been on my Crunchyroll watch list for years at this point, um, because I knew it was by the guy who was a character designer and animation director on Mobile Suit Gundam. Um, but I just like, it's one of those things that you see it and you're like, I'm sure I would like that. And you put it on a watch list, but because you didn't put it on the watch list with the immediate intent of actually just watching it, uh, in like the near future, it just sort of sits there forever in this constant state of like, <laughs> I should really watch that, but without the impetus to actually start watching yes. it. So this finally gave me the impetus to watch it and giant Gorg kicks so much ass. It is a great show. Um, I highly recommend it. One thing that's interesting about giant Gorg is, um, I really wouldn't call it a mecha show. Uh, it feels like a show that like uses like some like mecha like ideas and broad imagery in order to sell itself because particularly the mid eighties, that's when like mech anime was at its most popular. Cause that's where you've got Zeta Gundam and Macross and Vodums and all that stuff is kicking off. Um, but really giant Gorg at its heart is a Kaiju show. Um, it's like closest inspirations would be things like King Kong and Gamera. It's very much a like a, a boy in his monster kind of show where the main character, voiced by Maimi Tanaka, um, uh, is a kid named Takami Yu, and he ends up on this mysterious island that's basically Skull Island from King Kong. It exists on no map. It's got weird monsters and stuff on it. Um, it's got like a, a group of natives that live on that island. Um, and then there's this evil mega corporation called Gale that is also on the island investigating all the weird like sort of biomechanical creatures that seem to exist there. Um, and on that island, you, and this is all like episode four, so it takes us time to get here. You meet Gorg, which is a giant robot, but Gorg is like independently intelligent. He acts on his own. He has his own, like, while well, he doesn't communicate very directly, he can communicate telepathically with the main character. Um, and so while it, it appears on the surface, and if you just look at like the logo or some images, you might think it is a mecha show. It's very much not. Um, but if you like movies like King Kong, if you like stuff like Godzilla, like the show at your Godzilla movies where Godzilla is more heroic or like the Gamera movies, um, it's very much in that broad tradition, um, which is stuff that I all really love. Uh, and so it's got a really great, almost kind of like classic Hollywood adventure movie kind of vibe to it like it's very easy to imagine a like 1950s ray harryhausen movie um version of giant gorg because it's just that kind of got a kind of like adventurous heart and spirit to it um and it's and it's fucking amazing like i just love the show to death that's awesome yeah i was just uh on my iPad here, adding it to my Crunchyroll watch list, where I was going through and like, oh man, there's a lot of shows Sean has told me about over the years on this thing that I have not had time to watch yet, like um, Polar Bear Cafe and yes. Skull Face Bookseller Honda-san. <laughs> those look very fun, but I haven't yeah. watched those yet. <laughs> Here's two totally inconsequential things about Giant Gorg that is going to make you specifically, Jonathan Lack, want to watch it immediately. Um, one of those things is that one of the main antagonists is voiced by Shuchi Keda. So this is actually where I believe this is the first time Maimi Tanaka and Shuchi Keda worked together, which that creates a direct 
and a Yoshikazu Yasuhiko production creates a direct connection to the casting for episode one of Origin, where Mayumi Tanaka plays the young Char. Wonderful. Castle. Um, but that's not even the small fact. The small fact is that Shuichi Keita voices an antagonist character who's an American named Rod Balboa, who oh is the God. grandson of Roy Balboa, and nobody ever talks about his dad. And I don't think it's supposed to be an implication, but I'm fascinated with the idea that his father is Rocky Balboa from the Rocky movies. Because it's a family of men whose names are Balboa and their first name is R.O. And there's a mysterious missing member. The entire the series is set in like the early to mid 90s. And the guy is like in his 20s to maybe early 30s. And so he would be the right age to be Rocky's kid. And so I can only assume that this is Rocky Balboa's son that is the antagonist, uh, and he's Rod Balboa. That That's is one amazing. Fact. The <laughs> other fact, Jonathan, that you will love, that again is totally inconsequential but is utterly delightful, is at the end of every episode of Giant Gort, it freeze frames on the last shot, usually on a cliffhanger um, that is a very like classic Hollywood-style cliffhanger, because again, it's kind of going for that classic Hollywood adventure movie serial kind of vibe. Uh, but it freeze frames, and then over that frame, it draws in English, in cursive, see you next time, same Gorg time, same Gorg channel. Fuck, oh my, okay, well, podcast canceled today, I have to go binge Giant Gorg so we can do weekly Giant Gorg next week. <laughs> yeah, I, it's it's amazing. Like, the show, like, the, just the vibe and the style of the show is incredible. Obviously, everyone can tell from those two facts, but then also, like, the characters in the story are really good. Uh, it's got a great ending. Um, so yeah, I highly recommend Giant Gorg. Um, it's, I don't, again, I, it, I wouldn't go into it being like, I really like mecha stuff. Therefore, I really like Giant Gorg because it's not really a mecha show. But if you like 1980s sci-fi anime in general, if you like and sci-fi anime that has a lot of very direct oblique references and stuff like that to 2001 A Space Odyssey and just like kind of ripping <laughs> off shots from 2001 A Space Odyssey as all sci-fi anime should... Um, and then also, if you like stuff like King Kong, th this is very much in that kind of wheelhouse. And, and it's unlike any other anime I've watched. Um, and it's fucking great. It looks great. The first episode is called New York Suspense. Yes. That's a great name for an episode. I can't wait to watch this, Sean. That sounds wonderful. Uh, and I am also glad that you're enjoying the manga because it's one of my favorite things ever. Um, I'm impressed you managed to read that much because this is one other thing about the manga, Sean, I have to say, the Gundam Origin manga, is that it takes a long time to read because it is so mm. decompressed. It is so dense. The art is just so good. You want to spend all your time looking at it. Um, oh, my God. Anyway... There's so much to break down here. I, I think everyone, uh, just to, to fill everyone in, we're going to have six episodes on this OVA, obviously, but then we will probably do a seventh part where we just talk about the manga and, and you know, what's not in that flashback. So that'll that'll take us through, actually, episode 50 of Weekly Suit Gundam. There you go. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's good Gundam origin. Yoshikazu Yasuhiko, it's a good time. I'm, I'm excited. I'm going to try to dive into some of his movies and stuff also because I'm nice. just, like, hooked in right now. Yeah, but I think that's enough of the preliminary stuff. Obviously, we don't have any. There's no like production history or whatever. Like this is all the same stuff uh, from kind of the origin we covered on last week's episode. So let's go ahead, Jonathan, and dive into episode two, Artesia's sorrow, and pick up with our our sad little uh, the 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 children of Zeonzum Daikun and what's going on with them uh, because uh, it's not it's not a great time for them <laughs> over the course of this episode. I would say. Not over the course of this episode, though, where they start out, they're doing okay. 
But before we get into that, I did just want to uh, mention also, this is in the episode, but I wanted to start at the very beginning of the episode and talk quickly about how this show does recaps, mm-hmm. because I love it. Um, they use the original Gundam 79 music for those. I mean, it's redone, but it's basically the Gundam 79 music, so it yeah. sounds really cool. Um in this episode in particular, it's not just a recap. It gives you some extra info. It, it tells you the timeline of like when Zeon Zoom Daikun came to power in 0057. It talks about Moonzo gaining autonomy. Just extra info you didn't get in the first episode. It's very entertainingly done. It's done in the style of Gundam. Not just Gundam 79, but also in the style of... Um, actually, I'm not sure how they do it in the Tonkobons, but in the Perfect Editions at the beginning of each one, you do have a recap that mm-hmm. is written sort of in the style of that narration, but Yasuhiko really milks it, and it's wonderful, and there's just constant great turns of phrase, and all of that is done by Akio Otsuka as our narrator for Gundam The Origin. This is about as entertaining a recap as you're ever going to see. Yes, it is. it's Gato himself from Stardust Memories here to tell us about how Zeon came to be. Yes. Um, yeah, it's yes, it's it is it's just a very, very good, soothing narrative voice. And he definitely like it feels like Akiosuke is putting on a little bit of like the voice you got from the narrator in the original Gundam, the Uchu Seiki Double That guy, like I feel like Akiosuke is pulling a little bit of that into uh to kind of like fit the overall um style of the recap. So much so that honestly I didn't I'm like, I recognize this voice, but is it because it's in this style or whatever? And usually I can tell Akio Otsuka right away, but I had to, I saw it in the credits and I'm like, oh, okay, because he is like, it's not as he's disguising his voice, but he's doing it in a very particular style and that's part of what's so delightful about it. Yes, um, and it is, it's particularly the music is the stuff that gets me about those. Like it, it, yeah. it reminds you of just how like truly iconic that original score is. Um, that you know, it's been a long time since we've watched something for Weekly Sugundam that has used stuff from that score. So it's yes. like just getting that um, opening theme is very, you know, it, it's very nostalgic in like a, a thousand different ways. Both like for like the podcast, for when I watched it, and just like it has that like historical quality to it of where you just know immediately. Like even if you hadn't watched the original Mobile Suit Gundam, you'd me like I think feel that kind of classic quality of the composition. They break into it a couple times in in as the episodes go along. In this one, you also get it when you cut back to Zeon and get our first rally of the zombies. Mm-hmm. You get like the zombie family. There's just and you're right. It is this. You realize just how iconic and like unique and interesting that music from Gundam seventy nine yeah. is. Every time they use it, it works on me very hard. But this episode proper picks up in Andalusia, Spain in 0071, so a couple years after the last episode, and Artesia is working as a nurse dedicated to helping people. We have a refugee crisis uh, in the area that has been brought about by climate change, explicitly named in this episode as it's a climate crisis, um, like North Africa is entirely uninhabitable, all this bad stuff. Um, while Casval is getting lessons from an increasingly agitated Jim Baral, and they all live under the roof of Don Tiabolo Mass, um, who is a wonderful uh, side character here. Yeah. And that is where I we pick up. I feel so bad for Don Tiabolo because he's such a good guy. He doesn't he deserve is. any of the awful shit that happens to him, you know? No, I mean, he is a good guy, and I actually think that's there will be more of this in future episodes, but even already here, you can see why Sela keeps the name Sela Mass. 
Like, I don't think it's just out of, like, convenience. I think there's an actual connection there to this guy who helps raise her and, like, encourages her going out and, and helping people and, like, this side of her that she starts to embrace in this episode. Because we also see that that refugee camp was provided by Don Diablo. He is mm-hmm. he is charitable with, like, his, his, you know, in a lot of different ways, obviously, because he's also taken in these kids and brought them into his family. Um, and he's a good guy. Uh, he's also a pretty smart guy who has the right read on Jim Burrell and like you're fucking around with Anaheim and he also has the right read on Anaheim. He's like, they're not trying to help you. They're trying to make money, you idiot. Um, yeah. And so I like Don Tiabolo Mass uh, quite a bit. Yeah, this whole opening segment is good of just, you know, it, it gets you that sense of you're seeing a lot of like the pieces, particularly for Sela of like who she is going to be um, in when you like know her from the show or in the manga of course like as we said last episode this happens like in a sequence where you have had um, mobile suit gundam happen up to jopro stuff and then you have actually sayla is the one who like is explicitly has some sort of flashback although obviously she couldn't possibly know any of the shark stuff that happens here but she's kind of your entry point into the flashbacks um and and i like here you just get that sense of she's a nurse and eventually she'll become a doctor she has adopted that sayla mass um personality um, and that kind of like, you know, identity and everything. But then Castful slash Edward Mass, when you start seeing more of him, he never really feels like he he actually acclimates to or wants to adopt this like Edward Mass personality. Um, and I think that that like dynamic is pretty clear immediately. That dynamic is definitely clear immediately. Although I also think the first half of this episode is interesting in that you see signs over and over that Castful is obviously not nearly as settled as Artesia. But he still has a level of like goodness in him that maybe he could, you know. Um, I yeah, would say he's definitely up- not. You know, he's not the like un, like the drawn knife or whatever the sharpened knife that he's described yes. in later in the episode. Yet, um, yeah, that no. you can see that there's still just like a young man in there um, that is just like a normal person uh, that that maybe when like if things had gone differently, he could have been a like a person and not a like sociopathic murderer well i would say you know the key tension of this episode and the key structuring dynamic and again like i don't think any of these six episodes had a particularly hard job in figuring out where to start Mm -hmm. and end because i think yasiko's manga gives that to them very openly but it is still very savvy that this is you know jumping ahead a couple of years later and tracing this arc from when they have become the mass siblings to the point that Char, he's not Char yet, that Casval leaves Sela behind in a very iconic moment that goes all the way back to the second Gundam movie is when that scene originally comes from. Um, and I think the main tension throughout this episode is what are the things that are holding Casval back from becoming who we know he's going to be? And I think that thing is Sela. That thing is, is Artesia. Mm-hmm. And... I, I think one of the interesting things that I saw watching this, you know, a second time for this podcast is that I think the episode plays with this tension that I think Casfall could have been okay. I don't know if he would ever be particularly well adjusted, but I think he could have been okay if the mom hadn't died then and in the way she does. Like mm-hmm. that very clearly this episode paints as the pain and the indignity that drives him over the edge. Um, because when they get to Texas, he's, you know... He's okay. He's in his element. He's riding on a horse. He's giving Shah Osnabal a high five, uh-huh. you know? Like, 
he could be okay. And then the mom dies. They never see her again. They can't even put her name on the fucking gravestone. And it's like something has to give now within him. And, you know, in the beginning of the episode, you also see he still 100% has it in him to be a good brother. When Sela gets sick working in the refugee camp, he drops everything and is there for her morning and night. He stays with her all night long. He has it in him to be a good, loving brother. And the thing that I think is most perverse and dark in, in this episode and the arc it traces is that to become Shara's novel, the man we know he will become, he has to cut that part of his heart out. He knows, and I think it's very true, that if Sela was in his life, he wouldn't go off and do all the things we know he's going to do. Because he's going to kill a guy in this episode later on with a fucking piece of wood with nails in it. And Sela's able to hold him back. And so the, th the natural extent of that is if he wants to embrace the anger that's within him, he has to leave her behind. And it's the cruelest thing he ever does to anybody. Yeah, and I think there's something interesting here of the like the perspective you have is it's um, very much you are in Sela's head for this whole section. This is true of the movie and the manga that like you're always looking at um, like Caswell through her eyes um, and you never get access to his interiority, which you never do. Right. Because you can't you can never actually have access to Char's interiority. It's a thing that you can't do with the character. So even when Char in later episodes becomes more or less the POV character. He's you, you as a viewer are still kept at a distance from him and watching him plot and like scheme and things like that. Um, but here you, in this episode, you are given like very direct access um, to Sayla's interiority in a way that you very rarely are in Gundam stuff. Um, you like are in, in specifically in like Tomino style Gundam. And it's true of like the origin manga as well. Like Yuzukazu Yasuhiko very rarely ever actually uses an internal monologue for characters. It's one of the reasons why in the manga it's important to like the detail and the focus on character facial expressions and things like that are what you get instead of having an internal monologue. Um, but in with Sayla here, you actually do. You do get some internal monologues. You get her diary that she writes to her mother that gives you like a kind of privileged access into her like intimate thoughts and feelings. Um, and that's uh, like a really strong aspect of this episode and it's one of the things I think they deliberately designed the episode around because they end this episode earlier than where the like the volume the Tonkabun volume that it encompasses goes all the way to Edward or like Char actual Char's novel's death and that's covered in the next episode of The Origin so here it's like focused specifically on Artesia slash Sela and her experience and what she sees um, and you're always looking at what Char is doing from her perspective. You're never seeing him act in this episode independent of, of Sayla's gaze. Yes, there, there is more with Sayla past this episode. Um, but I think it's fair to say this is her most significant stretch of the origin uh -huh. OVA. Because this builds to her primal moment. Like her primal moment that is still informing everything she does in the original series. Um, whereas there's still quite a bit of ground to cover for Char, but I think her abandonment at the end of this episode is the thing that kind of seals her into the role that we will see her play in the big epic story to come. Is that fair to say? Yeah, um, because it's also, it is the thing that 
you know, where the, the flashback happens in the manga that, like, precedes this is immediately after her confrontation with Shar at Jabara. Yes. Right? So that's, like, kind of what prompts this whole thing is her encountering him and her knowing this time for sure that he is her brother and he knows for sure that she is his sister. Um, yeah. And that's the first time they've had that confrontation in, in the manga version. So so that's definitely, that feels like that's what this specific story, which in the manga is called Shar and Sela, like, is telling. Um, is the like origin of those these two people um but the origin of Shar kind of gets moved to the beginning of the next episode of the origin manga so that this episode can focus entirely on Sailor's experience which is smart that's exactly yeah. how you should do it mm-hmm. they do it very well here um and you know that final moment you know I we don't have to move through these episodes linearly obviously but they fucking nail it that is one of the most uh-huh. iconic moments in the history of Gundam it's first glimpsed I mean obviously you know in Gundam 79 that Char left Sale at some point but there's no visual associated with it it's in movie 2 when she is in the prison cell after she goes out in the Gundam alone and, and tries to interrogate that prisoner and all of that stuff mm-hmm. and she's put in solitary that we first get this flashback where she is reaching out to Casval. in this it's like a dream sequence so it's a nondescript blue back background world but she's running and she's yelling Casfall, Casfall Nissan that over and over again yeah. and it is Char in the big brown trench coat with the briefcase walking and his one look back and that iconic look Yasuhiko then does that in the manga expands on it it was kind of funny you talk about the decompression of the manga that one was the funniest for me when I was making I would I, if you look on my Twitter I have some images about this and that's like 10 pages of the manga because he really like sits in that yes. moment you know um, and it's a it's a beautifully beautifully done moment, obviously, um, and uh, and then it becomes the end of this episode. Um, in the manga, that's also one of the color uh, sections, which the way Yasuhiko does colors, if you haven't looked at it, is basically like all watercolor and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's fucking gorgeous. It does not look like any other manga color pages I've ever seen. Um, and he ends with the look back that Char has. And the way they do that in the episode is through a series of shots and then a big, and it's one of the best uses of digital stuff I think they ever do in this mm-hmm. in this OVA, is a big digital virtual camera. It's a rack, like zoom, and then it like flies in and goes into Char and moves him into like a black nebulous liminal space. And that's how the episode well, ends. Because the way that I think, like, the sort of virtual lens they're using distorts the background as it's zooming forward, like, the dark forest trees that he's walking towards, like, kind of consume the background in in him. It's a really striking shot that then immediately smashes into the credits with the the credit song. And yes, like, that is, like, very much I feel like that was the, the choice they made for this episode was to identify that that is the ending point, not... Shar then going on the plane or like Castle going on the plane with actual Shar and getting him killed and like the Tonkabon ends like the section ends with uh, the actual Shar's novel's body floating through space and the name Edward Mass from the registry of the deceased like superimposed over it and I think it was very smart and candy of them to say let's no like let's identify this really strong point and build this whole episode around this clear story arc of Sela her perspective and it's all building up to this split of you know castle nissan goes one way and sayla is left behind um yeah. and, and and that is the entire kind of story that this episode tells well i mean if you're thinking moment. about if you're thinking about the list of moments that this ova had to get right 
that is near the top of the list, right? Like, that is one of the... Even if you haven't read the manga, this is one of the moments that the OVA just in Gundam lore and history has to nail. And they fucking nail it. They do it really well. Um, you know, I think the the actress who plays Sayla in this episode is just phenomenal throughout this whole thing. Yeah. It's a great, great vocal performance as Sayla. Um, and doing the moment of the yelling out Casval, Casval Nissan is, uh, is powerful stuff. And I would say... One of the things Shuichi Ikeda is doing this episode, because we should say Ikeda takes over now for this episode as um, Caswell's Shar Edward. It's kind of funny. In the first episode, you have Mayumi Tanaka credited as Caswell Rem Daikun and Shuichi Ikeda credited as Shara's novel. In this episode, you have Shuichi Ikeda credited as Edward Mass, and it's not until next week that he is credited as Shara's novel again. And I kind of like how they play with that in the credits, if you look closely. Um... But I would say for most of this episode, he is not doing the Char voice yet, right? Mm-hmm. He is doing... I mean, for one, he's trying to do a young voice at the beginning, and I find it very funny, um, because Shuichi Keita is not a young man. It's kind of like uh, Kid Trunks a little bit in Japanese, and I fucking love uh-huh. it. Um, it's great. But then um, I would say the first line he has in Gundam The Origin that sounds like Shara's novel, the guy we know, is his Sayonara Artesia. And it's the way he says Artesia is like, yeah. he's Char now. Oh, shit. Right? Yes, yeah. Because that, that's definitely where he gets that Artesia. That, that like, the that's where he gets the kind of flowery, exaggerated delivery. Um, where where it, I feel like it is impossible. Like, you have to constantly fight the instinct to do a Char impression whenever you try to say Artesia. Particularly if you're trying to say <laughs> yes. it in, a, like, in the Japanese way. Um, because it is a very it's one of those things that if you want to do a char impression one of the things you would do to get into a char impression is to go Arutatia. exactly it's, just, it's, it's where the voice comes from completely and that's when i i do feel like in the booth like ikeda's like okay you're free fly fly shuichi ikeda and he will fly very broadly in the in the third episode but we're not talking about that one yet yeah um but I do like that there's that control throughout this episode. And I think part of what makes that moment hit so hard is hearing Shara's novel say that line to her and then walk away. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and part of what makes it powerful is, I think, like the distance that you're kept from that character. Like that's part of like yeah. the point of having Sela be so completely your POV for this section of the story is like... You or you can only kind of guess at or glimpse at the moments where that transformation is happening, and you never know interior, like inside, what is Char actually or Castle actually thinking? Like, what is he actually feeling? Like, how much of that anger and the manipulative element of his character that you know from the rest of the story, like how much of that is there, and you're just not seeing it, or how much of that is being born in front of you in these kinds in these moments. You know, we've spent literal dozens of hours talking about Shara's novel on this show, Weekly Suit Gundam. And I do think one of the reasons we're able to do that is because everyone who's told Shara's stories in this medium, whether it be Yoshiyuki Tomino or Yasuhiko here or, or others, I think are very careful to do exactly what you said, Sean, which is never allow... He has a lot of interiority. We just don't see it. We are always denied that. We are given very... I think, like, um, knowing glimpses into it, like the moments in Char's counterattack, the movie, where the mask drops a little bit, is very intentional. 
Um, and so that's, you know, that's why I feel like I can identify as I did last week, like w- the three most primal moments, like Rosetta Stone moments for Char for me. And I, I listed those last week. And it's because it's those rare moments where something breaks and you see behind the mask, like metaphorically in all three of those scenes, he's not wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. Um, the mask of his actual like human face. Um, and I think this episode is one of the best at like putting you at a distance. So you can have these conversations like, you know, my read on it is that I think he's troubled, but I do not think in for most of this episode until he gets the note, his mom is dead. I don't think he is yet the guy who would go do Shara's novel stuff, but I can see someone reading it differently. You know, like what is on his mind when he meets the boy actually named Shara's novel and gives him that really, you know, big high five, which is a wonderful, like full page in the manga. And they mm-hmm. do it very fun here. And Sayla's very worried because she's like, what is he thinking? And then he seems to be okay. And it's like, how do you read that? Do you read that as Shar? God damn it. Caswell. <laughs> Yes. Edward is ready. To, this was so hard to take notes on, Sean, because uh-huh. I'm writing Char, and then actual boy named Shara's novel comes in. I'm like, God damn it, crossing stuff out. What does what does Edward Mass? What does Casfall, you know, think in that moment? Is he thinking, you know, we're on Texas. I've got my horse. My sister's okay. This guy seems like a putz, but you know, maybe I could use him for some stuff. And that's kind of where I think he's probably at. But I could also see someone looking at that scene and seeing that high five and being like, this kid is thinking already what he can do with the end of having this new name, you know? Because I can see it read either way, and that's what makes this character so rich. Yeah, because honestly, I kind of read him a little bit as the latter. Of Like, I do think that, like, if, you know, somehow the stuff with the mother didn't happen and she miraculously escaped and was able to, like, return to Char in Sailor or to Castle in, in Arutatia. I think things would have been fine. Um, probably that, that you know, Castle would not have gone on the path that he goes on. But I think that that, like, thing is always very clearly there. There's something about him in this section of the story where you're just waiting for him to explode. There's, like, a, there's a, like, distractedness to his character in a bunch of scenes, like in the Jimba Rao scene and then later at the dinner scene... Um, where Shara's novel, the actual Shara's novel is, has, you know, can go to the academy or whatever, and he's very passionately talking about Zeon and the Zabis, you know, taking on the reins for Zeon Zoom Daikun. And everyone, or like, particularly Artisia, is like looking at um, Castle, knowing that it's like this is a time bomb going off, and Castle just acts very distractedly. He's just like, huh? Oh, uh, uh, yeah, huh? Um, and it's hard to know when you're looking at it, it's like, does he actually not care? Um, because everybody else is like visibly scared by him. Um, even when they're not given a specific reason, there are multiple times where Artishi is like visibly frightened by her brother when he's not even really doing anything like riding up on the horse and seeing um, actual Char. And I think that kind of gives you the sense of that there is that thing that is like in there waiting to get out. It just doesn't have the excuse yet or it doesn't have the vector yet to fully express itself, but it's there like hiding behind this mask of like aloofness that he's putting on. This is one of the things in Shara's novel as a character that I think Yasuhiko uniquely hones in on, which is the role of anger in his life. Mm-hmm. Because Shar is the coolest cucumber in the room usually, right? Like he is, he doesn't usually ever raise his voice. He very rarely gets mad. 
Amuro has to beat him a whole lot of times before he ever starts yelling at Amuro, you know? Uh Like, he is very collected. You do not think of Char usually as an outwardly angry character. But, of course, he has a lot of pride, and he has an inflated sense of self, and he can get angry. And we know that from all the way to the Old Testament of Gundam 79, the TV show, that it ends on him kind of losing his way, getting mad at Amuro having this fight and then finally like Sela pulling him back and him collecting himself and going and blowing Kaisilia Zabi's head off right so like this is always a part of it it's there in Char's counterattack too and I think Yasuhiko in both the flashback and then throughout the manga I think does a really good job playing with that tension in Char and I would say if I had to get into Yasuhiko's like head as a creator I think he very much interprets all of Char's affectations the mask the voice the way he holds himself, all of that, as different things that he channels anger into to be able to like go out and function in the world. And I think a lot of the arc that he gives Char in the story itself, the, the present day, the story of First Gundam, is about that. And I think the specific role he channels Char's anger through, specifically at the end of the story, is something he's building to through all of this, and it's why it's important in the flashback, too. I'm trying to step lightly, because you're still reading the manga, and I don't just want to mm-hmm. give it away. Um, but those are all emotions that are being played with, and I think you're absolutely right that that is the tension in this episode, is we know from having watched episode one that this kid just has raw fury in him from what was done to him and his family, right? And justifiably so. <laughs> but, like, yeah. he has this in him... And I think everyone can feel it kind of radiating off of him. And it's like, where, where is it going to go? That's the question of this episode is where is that anger? What vector will it be channeled through? Um, and it doesn't burst until like 50 minutes into the episode when he takes that beer mug and pours it over a guy's head and then smashes his hand into the fucking jelly. Um, and it's a phenomenal scene. But it is a tension throughout this whole thing. Yeah, and I think one of the places where it really starts, and this is a scene I really want to like zoom in on because I think it's just fascinating because it's very different than like stylistically than what you'd normally expect from Gundam is the attack on the manor at the beginning. Yes. Um, and this just really weird, just like blatantly symbolic thing that happens where there is a man in knight's plate mail armor with a rapier that stalks through those hallways and attack he you know he attacks uh don diablo causing him to fall out the window he stabs and kills jim burrell um and then also is like going after the kids um until eventually char arms himself with the sword fights the man in the armor um ultimately defeats the man in the armor by stabbing his sword vertically through the slit in the visor and then like pushing him off and like having the walkway collapse underneath him um, but it is such a bizarre, surreal scene because because it, because it doesn't make any fucking sense. Like, right? It, not in a way that I think it's bad, in a way that I think it's very fascinating. But there's absolutely no reasonable explanation for why a person would have, when attacking that mansion, thrown away their gun, put on a piece, like a the set of decorative <laughs> plate mail armor that was in the hallway, grabbed a sword, decided to, like, without saying anything, because this knight never says anything, they're really, like, the, the sound effects of him breathing are really good in the OVA, and I think they, like, capture that monstrous feel of him. But him just stalking slowly, like fucking Jason Voorhees, the people living in the manor in the kids. Um, it's such a bizarre choice. 
Um, but it obviously, like, you know, with the very clear symbolic, like, um, pairing of that, and then the next scene, I believe, I think it's the very next scene you get is when it starts going to the mobile worker stuff with Ron Burrell, right? So it's like, it is this direct comparison of that is the ancient iconographic version of, I mean, we talk about this a lot with Iron-Blooded Orphans, Knights in Plate Mail Armor is like this ancient version of what the mobile suits in the future world of Mobile Suit Gundam have now become. Um, and this is just a weird fucking scene. It's a weird fucking scene. That that's a symbolic pairing, but it's also a symbolic pairing to Shar's future self. Well, yes, yes, yeah. Um, because when you say, "Man, it's a bizarre choice to go into a manor in full play," you know what else is a bizarre choice? To ride around in a red mobile suit with a giant fucking target on your back, wearing a silly mask and helmet, and dressed to the nines. They're like, "That's a bizarre choice too," and that is the path this kid is going to walk. And again, not to spoil too much, but this is one of these scenes that I think if you've only seen the OVA is robbed of context most by its place in the manga because that whole thing is a primal moment for Char and it comes back in the present day story uh, in a very, very big way. It recolors. Again, I'm trying to, to tread lightly for people who haven't read the manga and don't want to be spoiled, but it, it colors very specifically the final confrontation between Char and Amuro in a well, really I mean, fascinating what way. What Char does, you know, I haven't read that point of the origin, but like just going off of, you know, having watch the original anime that obviously this is all sort of based on commentary yeah. on and based off of like what shard or castle does to that night is exactly what amuro does to shard at yes. the end of the original series right and it is um except for like the one vulnerability in the night is the one place where shard is actually protected right it's the helmet and the visor he's wearing that protects the exact spot that amuro stabs that then leaves the scar that shard wears for the rest of the series through zeta gundam and Char's counterattack. Um, and yes, like there is like clearly there is like, again, I don't know specifically what the origin manga does, but just going off of the ending of the original show, there's like a clear like mirror pairing there of Amuro, Char, and the knight in that like same incident happening in Char's future with him being the one who's getting stabbed. Yes. So yeah, I, I, when I say robbed of context, I don't mean like it in a bad way, like you couldn't possibly understand this scene having not read the manga because those connections symbolically are still there. Um, but it is something that, you know, Yasuhiko wrote this over 10 years, but it does not feel like he was ever flying by the seat of his pants. It very feels planned out at every stage. Um, and this is one of those very memorable scenes, but I agree, Sean. I mean, it is, and it's, it's symbolic in those multivalent ways. It is to Char in his future self. It is to the mechanization of the world that we see in this episode, that this episode is also about men getting in giant mobile suits and beating the shit out of each other for the first time, right? Um, and that side of it is so fascinating. But yeah, I I have to admit, I think, you know, Gundam, the origin, as I've said before, is one of the first Gundam things I watched. After we watched first Gundam, um, I watched a couple of the OVAs and I watched this. And the scene with the knight has always, always, always stuck in my head as like one of the defining Gundam images because it is so wonderfully weird yeah it, 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 it just like it feels like it just comes out of like a different show in a really great way um and and it's one of the moments in this episode where if we want to like look at the the things that happen to castle that turn him into char over the course of this episode i think like the two moments are this one and then the death of the mother because in both instances that's where you see on his face an expression you have never seen this character make here it's like complete terror and horror um that like there's a lingering shot on after he's defeated the knight 
and Caswell like holding Sela and like up on that like window well and looking down and he's completely and utterly terrified. Um, yes. Also them huddling while they're being stalked. He's also looks terrified there. And then later with the mother death, that's also where you see this anger and this sadness on him. Whereas as you say, like Shara's novel is always the coolest cu cucumber in the room. He is always the guy who like the most emotion he generally expresses is this like tinkling wink to, towards the camera when he's going to fucking betray and murder Garmazabi or something. Right. right. Like that's the emotional variety that you get from the character at a normal scene. Um, and you never see him be visibly scared by something and seeing him just be utterly terrified by this metal man stalking him that he is this just like anonymous figure that says nothing that you can't get at in any way that you know he can't hurt in any way other than you know by going through the visor like directly to the eyes you know earlier he tries to swing and hit the sword on like the side of the plate mail and, and it does nothing as it would do nothing um and, and that sense of him seeing that and then I think that horror that that is then the thing that he wants to become to sort of like get over that feeling of powerlessness he had in that moment like the only time he's ever felt powerless right he was like locked in a room with Cassilia Zabi was handcuffed and she verbally and like physically threatened him and he didn't fucking blink but this thing is here and it completely scares the ever living shit out of him um, and I think that sense of like that need to overcome that fear and become this like invincible metal anonymous man that you cannot hit, you cannot hurt, you can't get to this guy in any way because he's completely covered up in armor is the thing that Shara wants to become both literally with the mobile suit, but then also figuratively with the like layers of different identities and things and masks he puts over himself to keep himself caged up and in a metal suit so no one can get to him. That's absolutely, that's a great analysis. And of course, what is... What is the thing Shar forgets about this primal moment is that he could get to the guy in the metal suit. Yes. Right? Exactly. There's always a weak point. There always is. You can't actually become the invincible man in the metal mask. Um, and Shar knows that because he stabbed him through the fucking visor. No, it is, you know, I think one of the things that makes the origin so good as a prequel is because it has this focus on this series of primal moments. And I keep using that term because I don't, I think it's the best term to use. It's these mm -hmm. like, you know, moments that we all have in our lives. And sometimes they are uncanny and weird. And they are often driven by moments of heightened emotion, like anxiety and fear that like are immensely important in shaping us into the adults we become. And I think the ones that Gundam the Origin identifies for all the characters over and over again just ring so true both to the series that we know and love that this is prequelizing, but also just to kind of the way life works. It feels very human. Even if, you know, very few of us have been uh, space royalty <laughs> displanted from our home colony and then stalked by a man in a metal suit of armor. There's an emotional truth to that entire scene that I think feels very real because it harkens to whatever your primal moment is that, that creates different ticks in you. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's very effective to use this almost like dreamlike surreal scenario of the knight in armor stalking them in the like, you know, mysterious future year of Universal Century 70 0071, um, where, you know, it's juxtaposed with people making giant walking mechs um, and fighting with them, right? Uh, yes. It's such a weird choice. 
I do really want the like one volume spinoff manga about who that guy actually is. Like I want to see like, who is this dude who decided, you know what? I know I've got this like future of AK 47 or whatever. Um, but instead of that, let me put on this suit of armor. Cause it's like, it's that guy is incredibly lucky that nobody in that house apparently had a fucking gun because the thing about plate mail is that there is a reason why they stopped using it is because it's not actually bulletproof. And if anyone had a gun, that dude would have been fucking got immediately. So he's very <laughs> lucky that, you know, that nobody in that house knew what to do when a, a man in, in night armor shows up. Yep. I'm looking at this scene in the manga too, and and I don't remember the coloring exactly in the anime version. But in the manga, the first half of the scene is in black and white, uh, just your normal manga pages, and then it does have a section after Shar stabs him in the face in color. And the way Yasuhiko does color is is it's never going for realism. His use of color is very mm-hmm. impressionistic. It's often like coloring over whole things to give like sort of an emotional atmosphere. And that scene, it's this amazing series of shots of the knight with the sword in his face, blood flying out, like grabbing at it, trying to get away, and then Char knocks him over. Um, and it's done very abstractly, and it all is sort of around the color red and ends in this big sort of red sunrise over Tiabolo's mansion uh, as as dawn breaks. And um, it's one of several moments that the origin does where the color red becomes a very big thing in different, like, primal significant moments for Shara's novel, uh, which makes sense because that's the color he is most associated with. Yes, he is the red comet after all. Yes. So anyway... Um, we should probably mention that he does, the, the knight is unsuccessful in killing the kids, but he does kill poor Jim Burrell. So pour yep. one out for the best named Gundam person maybe ever. Uh, Jim Burrell, son of, or, uh, father of Ramba, who was clearly off his fucking rocker in this episode. <laughs> yes, yeah. I do like that whole, um, sort of explanation about the whole series of events that he, that Jimbo wants, you know, this like to to stage some sort of rebellion and he's like hired and Ina Anaheim you know which is like your classic giant you know mobile suit mega corporation from the universal century stuff um and of course the zombie family is watching them and is not super happy so like Cassilia specifically you'd find out that she kind of unilaterally ordered this like hit on that mansion um and Giran's disappointed that she didn't get the kids also um but Poor Jim Burrell, you know, he's just an old guy who he just wants to dream, right? Can he just be allowed to dream one last time to overthrow an entire nation <laughs> and, like, put in these children as the people in power? Like, just a quaint, normal dream that an old man wants to have, Don Diablo. Why you gotta shit on that? <laughs> it's very true. Um, you know, you also do get the scene where Caswell is getting lessons from Jimba Rao. And I love that scene because I have to imagine every single word Jimba is saying is something Shar has heard a million times throughout his life. Yeah, um, especially as the son of Zeonzoom Daikun, the guy who created the philosophy that Jimba Rao is like very stutteringly trying to express. Yes, but it's a, it's a nice little moment because it does, I was going back and I was watching, I watched Shar and Sela's big moment from the episode Shar and Sela of the anime and then the the redone version of that moment in movie three. Um, and one of the things that is mentioned in both versions of that scene is Jimba teaching them about their father's philosophy. Um, and so it is nice to have this, the scene here where Jimba does just that uh, very crazily. <laughs> yes. There is a, a beat that it exists in the origin by or in the OVA, but I think it doesn't quite hit the same thing that the manga page does, where the page where Jimba Rowell is explaining 
this like it's specifically it's the move the page where he's moved on to explain the new type stuff then like cuts to and they do do this cut but i think it does it, it loses some of like its strength that the the origin page has it cuts to sayla floating in the pool face up with the yes. water around her that in the manga is drawn in such a way that like very directly references that really iconic shot of lala soon after she dies and her dress melts into this yellow pool and her face is floating above it and the way that that shot is the panel is framed in the origin manga or manga like it's quoting that directly when Jim Burrell is talking about new types because you also know that Sayla is a new type she has like had new type shit happen to her before this point in both the anime and the manga um, and, and it's one little beat that I feel like the OVA kind of misses on that is like a really good piece of framing and like you know foreshadowing slash reference um that the manga does that is also how um tomino's novelization ends is her in the ocean hearing amuro's voice from the dead as a new type mm-hmm. um so yeah that's a that's a really good catch sean i would not have remembered that off the top of my head because it's been about a year since i read the manga um yes, well, yeah, i it's... read that page about 10 hours before i watched the episode so <laughs> there you, you go want very detailed breakdowns of what is different i can definitely provide yes. because i was like well, reading and watching it almost simultaneously well and i i found it immediately because it is a it's a super striking visual and it is yes. gorgeous yeah as it's the kind of cut you could do it in in animation it would be harder though like there's something about the starkness of moving from one panel to the next that is what makes that so powerful in the manga mm-hmm. yeah all right, what else to talk from this stretch of episode? We talked about, so it's so, okay. So it is, we get a cameo from Mira Yashima via her father, Shu, who is the one who visits Tiabolo as he is, that poor guy, he got thrown out a fucking window. Every bone in his body is broken. Yeah. And he's still thinking about the kids. He's thinking maybe about abandoning them, but for good reason. I wouldn't blame him for that. Um, and uh, Shu Yashima has the idea, well, what if you moved to Texas? No, not Texas on Earth, Texas in space. Uh, Texas in space yes via... but where actually the architecture is a little bit more modeled after wyoming which is a bit north of texas which is a really yes. funny piece of dialogue this fucking great piece of dialogue yeah but yes it's he owns this colony that was abandoned inside five and his whole logic is that if you move there the zombies will see that as a show of submission because loom is the side closest to Zion. um and yeah, I like that little touch. I like getting little girl Mirai here who sees Shar and Sela in the window as she's walking away. Um, and we get one line from Mirai here. It is a different voice actress. It's not the one who was in original Gundam 79. Um, but I do like seeing Mirai here. Yes, it's a pretty natural beat, particularly because like you hear about you know her dad being very important in the origin manga and in the original anime. Um, and it's fun just to like see him as like, oh, right. To be reminded, right, Mirai's dad was, like, this big corporate businessman dude who was, like, very influential and seemed to be a good guy um, that ter- tragically dies off screen, you know, during the events of the first episode of Mobile Suit Gundam. Um, so it's nice right. to see, you know, just to, like, just to get a little glimpse of that character is pretty cool. And I like the whole idea of, because we also, this seems true to her backstory in the show, that she went around with him and, like, had a lot of experience with this business. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a nice moment, yeah. Um, it's just a nice little moment of kindness you don't get a whole lot of that among powerful people in Gundam so I like Shu and Tiabolo two powerful people who are also good talking about how they can like live good lives it's a nice little thing to have yeah and, and help their kids you know, they're, help, just, they're yeah. just looking out for the children uh, and it's nice um, <clears throat> before we move on to 
all the stuff in Texas, I think we should do what the episode does and cut away a little bit here because this is where um, we get a cut back to Zoom City. And it's done, uh, first we get a big zombie rally. Um, we see how much they've sort of progressed in the last couple of years. We get some nice Gundam 79 music as Giren is given one of his big speeches. Uh, and they have all their fucking regalia now, which I think that's one of the striking things is going from the Republic of Moonzo in episode one to three years later now and how much like Zeon is crafted through like regalia and pomp and circumstance, which is how fascism works. Yes, yeah, like, the, this is where you start getting, like, the very direct, like, Naziist, like, um, elements to their fashion and the architecture and the propaganda and the fucking giant signs and flags and all that stuff. Yeah, um, it is, it's a very striking cut to see how much they have, like, very quickly immersed themselves in the power structures of that entire colony. And I know we sung his praises last week, but we're going to have to do it every week. Ginga Banjo is yes. just so good as Girin. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's just, I've you know, Ginga Banjo doesn't do a huge amount of voice acting anymore, which is understandable because he's quite old. Um, but I wish he did because he still fucking got it. He's so good. Um, every time you cut to him, I'm just like, yes, more Ginga Banjo, please. He's, one, he's got maybe the coolest name of any person on the planet. You can't smile. Uh, you can't help but smile if you say the name Ginga Banjo. Um, but then also he's got just such a like wonderful deep voice and I feel like his voice for Giren has only like gotten better with age um, because yeah some of his stuff in this episode is just like that the, his meeting with with Dozel where Giren just walks in is like this is nope like mobile suits the mobile worker project that's done and then Manoski that's episode commits, three I think but uh, well whatever the, whenever that happens um, his just like the way he takes command of every single room he's in and is very so decisive and direct there's something just you can feel the sense of charisma that he fills the character with that even though you know he's a villain like you understand how his like dictatorial like attitude is effective and it makes you like think back to the big speech at the end of like after Garma's dead in original yes. Gundam and stuff like that and that kind of that a very effective dictator but still charismatic and very scary performance and in that kind of the daily life of that character is cool to see um in the origin stuff yeah fantastic it's so good you also get a check-in with Ram Baral via uh, our insert song for this episode is By Your Side, which is this sort of jazzy song. It starts over this long pan shot through Zoom City, which mm -hmm. I love. Very much like playing off of, you know, um, uh, Yasuhiko in the manga has these extremely elaborate, like, establishing shot splash pages of just establishing settings, you know? And this is kind of our animated version of one of those. And then we go into the, the club where you have Crowley Hamon singing this song in the club and a depressed, very shiftless Rambaral sort of in the back of the bar who winds up beating up a bunch of drunken fed soldiers who want to sing karaoke. He doesn't want to sing karaoke. He wants to hear Hamon. And my favorite touch in this scene is that when he's starting to beat the guys up, he leans back on the bar uh -huh. and he says, Clamp! And Clamp wraps up his hands like a boxer, which yeah. it indicates so many different things, including that this must be fairly regular that Ramba hangs out in here and just beats the shit out of people. So Clamp is ready to wrap his wrists up like a boxer. It's fucking great. Yeah, this whole scene is amazing. The song is great. Um, so very good. much. Now that you're playing Persona 5 Royal, you understand that it sounds so much like the jazz club song that's in Persona 5 Royal. Um, it immediately yeah, no more what the, ifs. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, you know, very good jazzy kind of single. Um, uh, and it's interesting, you know, as I mean, it's also the case of the song that she's quote unquote sings in the manga. All the lyrics are in English and they have like an actual English language um, like singer to sing them. 
uh, and that all is great. And then, yes, the detail of having uh, Clamp, a uh, man who, who I was very sad when I got to the point of the manga was remember, reminded of, oh, right, he's the guy who's part of Ramba Rao's crew, who the reason he gets killed is because he goes to the command center of the white base to blow up, like, the outside of the window, but that's where all the kids are, and, like, Mirai and, and uh, Fraubo are there, and he basically gets shot because he doesn't want to kill all the little kids that are there. And it's like, that's, like, Jesus. one of the saddest little character deaths that I had forgotten about that moment, because it's in a TV show. Uh, yeah. But it's also the manga. But yes, Clamp there. Uh, he's he's just a good guy. And him taping up Rumble Rowell's hands right before Rumble Rowell just goes to fucking town on these guys. There's a very good moment that is like a very iconic gift from Yakuza 2 where um, Rumble Rowell gets hit in the back of the head with a fucking beer bottle. And he just turns around and it just pissed him off. Um, yeah. And it's very good. <laughs> and he just, you know, he fucks those guys up and it's great. He takes the mic and shoves it in their mouth, yelling at them to sing. Yes. And that is the point at which Dozel Zabi enters the episode. And I love this dynamic here between Dozel and Ramba Rao, because Dozel Zabi, especially compared to some of his siblings, is no genius. But he's very smart about soldiers and yeah. tactics and things, obviously. And he 100% has the right read on Ramba Rao, which is that this is a guy with a lot of talent and a lot of fight in him, who has no direction or purpose, and I've got a really cool mobile suit division, mm -hmm. and he is 100% right, because he totally gets... Ramba's a little, you know, wary about it, until he gets there, meets Gaia, Ortega, and Mash, the future black tri-stars, uh, and he sees Mobile Worker 01, and this is a theme that'll be in this episode, the next episode, throughout the OVA, is people, soldiers, seeing mobile suits for the first time, and falling head over heels in love, and it very much happens to Ramba Rao here. Yeah, uh, and it is, it, it's a good, like, it's a very good read on the character of Ramba Rao that, that proves very true. It's stuff we talked about in the previous episode, um, but that he's just, like, he just doesn't think in big-scale ways, and he's not interested in thinking on, like, the big-scale level. Like, that's just not the guy he is. Like, he, even though he knows that the zombies are bad, he knows that working for them is bad, he will still submit to it ultimately because he's more interested in, like, doing what he can do in, like, directly in front of him, right? His whole motivations for why he goes after the white base and all that stuff is just because he wants to secure, like, promotions and a more cushy life for all the men working underneath him, right? And that's a scene that's in the original anime. Um, as well and, and that whole dynamic of the character that it's like he's a good man he's a good guy um, and he's a very effective soldier but because of the kind of person he is he's he doesn't he's fighting on the wrong side because he's not interested in and can't really think outside the box enough to think about where he could be to actually do good in the world instead of just good for the people around him um, and it's a very kind of tragic character he's a good man in the wrong moment in time you know yeah. He, uh, he could be he could have done a lot better in a different moment in history. He is ill-suited for this moment in history. Um, and, I mean, the other, you know, obviously elephant in the room here is that his, they just killed his dad. I mean, this yeah. family just murdered his father in cold blood. Um, and, you know, there's a later scene where um, Ramba comes back to the, the club and is talking to Crowley. And they're talking about, like, you know, how shitty he feels being a dog of the zombies. And she points out, at least it's Dozel. And that's, like, their kind of, like, way to, like, reason with it. Which is true. At least it is Dozel. Ultimately, though, they are the people who did all this terrible shit. 
Um, and Crowley also feels, I think, similarly helpless. Um, you know, she has the big scene where she goes to see Australia, um, Artesia and Caswell's mom, and sees... I mean, that is, like, maybe the saddest thing in all of the fucking origin is what happens to the mom. Yeah. Um, alone in this tower that in this scene is covered in moss. She is wasting away. And not just wasting away. They are poisoning her every day. Mm-hmm. It's just not... No one's hiding it. They're just fucking yeah, poisoning it's, her. It's some real, like, Victorian gothic novel shit that's happening to this lady. Yep. Yeah, where she's locked away in this tower. Nobody tells her anything. And, yes, they are slowly poisoning her day after day um it, it's yeah really fucked up because the way you're introduced to that scene is also with um Haman telling her that the the woman who was Zianzun Daikin's wife that owns that property died but she died like shortly after the events of the previous episode um but but you know Castle and, and uh Artesia's mother didn't know that because she's just not told anything and she's just there in a like drugged stupor like slowly wasting away till she dies and it is such a depressing fate and that's also where you learn the backstory of that you know she was a part of the same club that Hamon works at and you get a little shot of Hamon as like a like 13 year old kid trying to look like an adult like dressed up in very like kind of like what she thinks are like sexy adult clothes but it just makes her look like an idiot and she's smoking on a cigarette that she can't really inhale so she just <laughs> coughs it all up um, but you you see there that there's a relationship between those characters, and so the scene where Haman comes back to the the bar and she's with Rama Rao after all the mobile worker stuff has happened, and and Miki Swashra has this line delivery on this line that Haman has where she's describing like everything that's been happening to this woman, and then just says she's going to die, shindeshimaimas, um, and she breaks down in tears, and the line delivery on that word is so so striking and effective it just puts like such a strong pin on everything that has been building up with that um and that character which is really vital because her death is the thing that's going to drive uh castle into becoming char and so that whole like just really depressing just powerless pitiable state of everything here um is really important to get so right and they just do it perfectly in 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 this episode they do and and we'll have a lot more to say about Ramba Rao and and Crowley in future episodes because maybe my favorite single moment in the origin OVA involves them and I think it's in episode five people will know what I'm talking about if you've seen it um but so much of their story is about starting out in one world and watching it fade away and then not Mm -hmm. knowing what to do in this new world and i think you get that a little bit here where in that flashback you also get details about how australia met zeon daikun um the man and that this is this man who she felt was hurting and you see there was a real connection there you see a real emotion a real nostalgia in those scenes and i think it's there for hamon as well even though she was younger um and you know Australia says she has one wish she wants one more night with the children and everyone in that scene knows that this is a world that's gone you know Zeon's mm-hmm. gone there's nothing more to do there the kids are gone she's never going to see them again Crowley when she comes back and is talking to Ramba you know she's going to die there's nothing to do about that and Ramba is a dog of the zombies and there's nothing he can do about that like all of these things this world has just slipped by them and I think that sadness and that feeling is one of the most interesting things the origin does yeah that it's very much you know people who wanted 
like a specific kind of era to come in and instead they are watching like everything being taken from them and this bar is like the last bastion they have of the world that they used to live in that they recognize yeah feels feels very of the moment i have to say uh-huh. yes yeah it's definitely <laughs> you know it's 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 robert Rowell is definitely the character that i've like like most see by like ourselves in our current circumstance in um, I identify more with him than 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 you know sociopath Prince Castle. I'm looking at Ramba yeah. and like, yeah, we're 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 all in the same boat with you, Ramba. Yeah, this all fucking sucks. At least my dad hasn't been murdered by like a weird Spaniard in knight's armor and a rapier. So I've got that <laughs> going better than you. But all right, um, what do you think of the scene where we get to see uh, the mobile suits for the first time? The the birth of the mobile worker. Uh, and of course, we also get the Black Tri Stars, who are their whole role is greatly expanded in the manga, as you've already seen, Sean. Um, yeah. And then we get them here as well. And uh, I like that Ramba calls them hoodlum soldiers, which is a great turn yes. of phrase. Yeah, uh, it's yeah, they're they're all really good. Like yeah, this whole the I particularly like the like visualization of what the prototypical mobile worker is is like this. It looks kind of like the power loader from Aliens. You know, it just it looks completely unsafe utterly dangerous and when Ramba Rao is fighting whichever one of the black tri-stars he fights at that kind of like duel I think it's Ortega um you know his commentary is like this cockpit is ridiculous it is just a death trap like you could barely rotate the arms all the way around it's like and you know he and Ortega have like almost killed each other in this fight of this like weird little duel and then does just like well take your feedback into consideration thank you very much (laughs) and it's very good (laughs) Well, it's also exactly what Dozel needed to hear because Ramba yeah. gets in that thing and immediately starts giving them all the feedback they need to make the actual, like, Zaku. Yeah. You know? So he was... Dozel, Dozel's hobby is smart at certain things, and this is one thing he's very smart at. Um, I love that. In general, I actually really do like uh, how the origin as an overall project adjusts the history of mobile suit development because I think it... You know, it doesn't completely undermine the fundamental truths about Gundam 79, which is that the Gundam is a breakthrough. But I like that it makes everything feel a little more historically minded, where, like, the Federation did have these gun tanks, and they were one thing. But then they kind of just left it at that, and that's where Xeon comes in and starts using these mobile workers and developing them into these things. And that's how it all sort of starts. There's stuff like that where I really like how that history is adjusted and feels very thought through and thoughtful. I'm I'm gonna. This is one point I'll disagree. I don't I don't like that they made gun tanks pre-exist all this stuff. Like to me, it kind of while it is more realistic, I prefer the very stark. The Federation had balls, and they fucking like like the mobile armor, I guess you'd call it, but the little like yeah. giant iron sphere with a cannon on it, and that was about it. I mean, they had that, and they had big battleships and spaceships, and that's what they thought warfare was going to be and Xeon completely blindsides them with this technical development that they have absolutely no response for. I feel like the gun tank as this like midpoint that just kind of exists beforehand, like again, it is probably more realistic, but I like the really stark dramatic, like, no, you had this dumb little sphere and then here is a mobile suit. And that like, that is the thing that is like the only reason why Xeon's able to do as successfully in the war as they do is because that technological breakthrough gives them such a huge advantage for that section of the war until actual mobile suit development can start up on the Federation side. I, I'm going to say that I, I prefer the kind of original vision of the show in that regard. 
I will... I think it works for me because it's the gun tank. Because that feels mm-hmm. like the kind of thing that is in line with big battleships and the little, like, balls. Is you have the big battleships for space combat. You have big ground tanks that can't be used for anything else. They're ground combat units for that. And then you have the balls for, like, basically construction and things like that. And those are your three. That makes sense to me. Because, like, the... The idea that the gun tank and the Gundam would both come up at the same time doesn't make sense. Like, like I think, I, I don't mind it, I don't care. But I do think it's like the Gundam is a breakthrough where the gun tank would not be. The gun tank doesn't help you in space combat. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think because the movie kind of adjusts this of like the movie version kind of has the, like the gun tanks and the gun cannons existed before the Gundam is kind of what the movies go with. Um, and I, I agree that like, you know, the gun tanks, the gun cannons only exist with the Gundam in the original show because they need to sell toys. Like, that's the only reason they were made in the first place is that they needed to be able to sell other toys. So, yes, like, that part is dumb. I think my issue with the gun tank and the idea of it predating this stuff is that there's no reason why it would look like it's a mech. There's no reason why it would have this, like, upper human torso. Like, that hmm. just is... It doesn't track with, like, I think my vision of how that development would go is the only reason it has the upper torso is to make it look like it's a mobile suit. But if mobile suits don't exist, why would you have developed it that way? Why wouldn't it just be a tank, which we see in, like, MSA Glue 2 and stuff like that? Yeah, fair enough. Uh, I will tell you one thing where I I do uh, dislike an origin change, which is in this episode, we do yeah. meet a young Amuro. I love meeting young Amuro. Toru Furia... I- yeah, does so an adorable getting cast as little six-year-old Amuro. I mean, you wouldn't cast anyone else, uh, but it is very funny to hear him. Like, have to give a couple of lines. It's like it's very that is it very much the kid trunks effect uh, with that it's, little kid Amuro. I fucking love it. It's so adorable. Yeah. It's so good. I love it to death. But you also see in the scene you get the change where Haro is not a thing that Amuro built mm-hmm. with his fun like um, I'm alone in my room skills. Uh, but it is a toy his father bought him, and I guess he he does modify it later. Yeah. Um, but it is fundamentally a toy, and it's a mass-produced thing. I don't like that. Amro built Haro. That is one change in the origin that has never sat well with me. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I feel like a lot of the like uh, that because this isn't the first time they've done that kind of thing of being like, ah, did Amro invent Haro? Or was it a toy? Um, and yeah, I think it Amro invented Haro. It's it's actually a very important part of his characterization originally is that it is the thing it's like the shorthand that the show uses to show this is boy genius Amuro Ray this is why he's able to pilot the Gundam and also the tragedy of his life is he could have been this really cool creative inventor who makes little fun things like Hado and that could have been one direction in his life instead that spark is snuffed out and turned into a gun basically because of the war and yeah I think that that it just kind of it's not hugely important, but it does, I think, weaken a dynamic with the character that, that I, I'm not a fan of that change. And I also just love it in the extended Universal Century lore. Like in Zeta, we find out other people started making Haros yeah. because of the like legends of the war. And then when Camille finds Haro on the moon, there's the question of, is this the real Haro or is this one of the mass-produced ones? There's just little things like that that I love. Also... Amuro could build Haro. It's a metal yeah. ball with a voice box. Like, there's Haro in original... I know Haro in other Gundams gets very advanced, and in, you know, Victory Gundam, he kills millions of people. But in original 79 Gundam, 
I totally believe Amuro could build Haro in his room. That's not yes. outside the realm of possibility. Um, you know, and in the in the manga, obviously, and, and in this OVA, because we're going to have more prequel time with Amuro, you can do other things to give him the shorthand of being a boy genius, and they do all of that. There's other things he does in his room, um, specifically the, the, the origin manga, and, and then the OVA is going to do stuff with him, like looking into the Gundam plans before the morning of, yeah. um, when he sees it for the first time. And I'm fine with all of that. But yeah, I... Uh, Amuro built Haro, goddammit. That's my canon. Yes. Amuro, Amuro built Haro and, and gun tanks shouldn't predate mobile workers slash mobile suits. This is this is this is my hill that I will die on, even though it's really not that important. It's really not that important. Uh, I guess the other thing for me is I don't think Tem Ray is nice enough to buy his kid in a uh, Haro. I just he's a fucking dick. I don't believe he does that. <laughs> that's that's actually even that's an even better argument that you are at hundred percent right. Tim Ray would not buy like the Haro looks too expensive. He would like you know it would be it would be that meme of like Amro being like I want a Haro dad and he'd be like well we've got a Haro at home and then at home is a soccer ball right like that's right that's very much uh, what Tim Ray is as a father. Yes, absolutely. All right. What else to talk about with this episode? Um, oh, I do. Here's a nice little touch. I love that when... This is the scene where Rambaral is fighting with um, Ortega, I think. But when he gets in his own version of the test mobile suit, it is painted blue. So yes. Rambaral has a has a penchant for blue suits. Obviously, he does. Um, I do like the CGI animation in those fights. It's very mm -hmm. MS Igloo, but in the best way, where it's these big heavy fucking industrial machines battling each other i think that's a really good use of the cgi yeah it's yeah there's a real sense of like physicality and weight to them i like that also they've got all these wires attached to them i think that's a good like little attention to detail of you know these are it's like gen one vr headsets or something it's like uh, yes well whatever power and all this like obviously this is completely impractical but let's just plug five thousand cables into this thing because we're still figuring it out exactly so, but we do have to talk about the second half of the episode on Loom. We get to side five. We get to uh, Texas. That's really Montana. We meet Michelle and Wyoming, Roger. Please, not Wyoming. Montana. What did I say, yeah. Montana? I'm sorry, Wyoming. Yeah, the, who cares? Um, uh, <laughs> we meet Michelle and Roger Osnabel. Um, I do love that Char. Uh, the real Char Osnabel's parents are named Roger and Michelle. That's great. They're wearing their stupid, like, Western get-ups. I think that's hilarious. Yes. Uh, and, of course, I love the detail that Edward Mass takes to horse riding immediately. Because, of course he would. That is that is him and his element. Yeah, and even better than that is that Sayla gets saddled with this, like, shitty little pony that is drawn in <laughs> and animated in the anime yes. version. In this, like, totally ga gag manga style that the other horses are not. And it's, it's got, so like, funny. Big, goofy googly eyes and its tongue is like slosh, sloshing all around and so it's just like come on horse like come on mr horse like let's go let's go um it's so cute i love it it's very good and this is where you get um i wish that there was a, more of the origin with like little kid sayla because i like in episode one we got little kid sayla wearing a cute little witch costume and then episode two we get little kid sayla wearing a cute cowgirl outfit it's like I wish that there were more like and here's like the adorable <laughs> outfit she wears in this episode because I feel like because yes he has a lot of fun drawing her with like her cowboy hat and her cowboy boots on it's very cute it is very cute but we also meet the real Shara's novel I mean the real Shara's novel is is the the, the guy we all yes. love but the the person whose name is actually Shara's yeah. novel the guy who's on his birth certificate says Shara's novel we get to meet him yes uh, voiced by Toshihiko yes. Seki 
who did Duo in Gundam Wing, and of course voiced one of the most iconic Shark clones, Raoul Lacruce, in Gundam Seed. How good is that casting, Sean? It's such a great piece of casting. I remember when I first watched this, I like cackled out loud when I heard of his, like, because it's also Toshiko Seki is putting on a little bit of, like, you know, he's not doing a Shar impression, um, but he is, like, you know, putting on a little bit of that Shuchikeda affectation, which is important because they add in a subplot in episode three of a character who know, knew the, like, actual Shar and is, like, suspicious of new Shar, and I think, like, doing this thing of, oh, like, their voices have to be similar enough when you actually ha- hear it that, like, you need to think about the fact that anybody who knew actual Shar would know immediately of that this guy is not him if their voices sounded totally different. So I think getting someone who, Toshiko Seki, like, sounds a little bit like a younger Shuji Keita, he does a little bit of the affectation, and then there's just, like, the delightful history of him being a guy who played a Shar clone, who is, like, one of the most shark clone ash shark clones in any gundam show which is rather cruze and gundam seed um it's just a very fun piece of casting yeah the only other one i think you could have gone with is the guy who voiced his ex marquise but i think yes. toshihiko seki is is exactly who you want for this you know yeah um and he's so good i love their whole meeting where sayla is on edge about shark picking a fight and not Char, Casfall, and so Casfall yes. comes up to Char and instead does the big high five. That panel in the manga is fucking delightful. They do it very well here. I love that they are just basically doppelgangers other than the eye color. I think that's like, it's such a like, it's stupid, but it's so fun. I love it. Yeah, it's one of the other things that is like fairly surreal here that like in a way that Gundam usually doesn't do because it is extremely convenient for Castle Rim Daikun that he just <laughs> happens to run into a person who is effectively his identical twin with the exception of his yes. eyes. Um, um, which, of course, this is all an invention of, of the origin because we never got this kind of detailed backstory for who the actual Charles novel was before. Um, but it works in that kind of like symbolic way, even if it, it, it if you if you took it very seriously, it's very silly. Um, but if you're reading it more in like the kind of expressionist narrative sense that it's going for, I think like I'm always a big fan of doppelganger stuff in fiction because it's yes. cool. Um, and I like it here. And yes, and the high five is the thing that sells it. The like, are the like, is he just going to murder this man who looks just like him? Like, what's going to happen? And then they just go in for a high five uh, after they tell each other their names is very funny. It is also downright surreal to have a moment where Shuichi Keita says Edward Mass and someone else says Shara's novel as they're yes. introducing their names and that's a great little moment. I mean um, it's like the only time that he calls himself Edward Mass in this whole thing yeah. like it's 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 because he also like he never calls Sela Sela he only calls her Artesia for the entire thing. Um, for the entire run of the series he yeah. never ever calls her Sela in OG Gundam. Yeah, so he's like clearly he's like very resistant to that like those ad- adopted identities, and, and this is like one of the only times you hear him actually vocalize the name Edward Mass. He likes giving himself names. He does not like being given names. Exactly. Um, I think that is true. Of I, I have to imagine that he came up with Quattro Bagina all on his own. Yeah, uh, and- I, I like to think that at home he's got a, in like the, the cabin in the Texas colony, he's got a little diary where he, that he's like writing names and like scratching them out. He's like, no, that's lame. And then in there is like Quattro Bagina and then like it's like circled with like five different highlighter colors and like five exclamation points afterwards. It's like one day, that Quattro Bagina, been... this is it. <laughs> 
that should have been a scene in this. That's a prequel yeah. scene where he is coming up with fake names and like Sayla sees them and is like, Char or uh, Caswell, you want to call yourself Quattro Pagina? He says, one day, Sayla, or one day, uh, Artesia, I will. Um, but of course, he's waylaid by the better opportunity of calling himself Shara's novel. <laughs> and of course, he would do the thing that the a lot of the old Japanese-only uh, Gundam games did, where you literally spell it the same way as vagina. Like it's not it's not the the like westernized like make it more comfortable for those like weird like you know prudish Americans that have to be B A J E E N A or anything no it's like it's quattro vagina like let's be serious about this yeah see he is the man with four vaginas um, exactly uh, Sean I also just have to mention while we're at it because I don't know where else I'm going to say it I am looking through these manga pages again. I just need to give one more shout out to how fucking funny the pony is in the uh -huh. manga. Yes. It's yes. good in the anime, but the fucking pony in the manga with its big stupid buck teeth and its like tongue out everywhere. There's a panel that's literally just a gag manga panel where she's screaming, chase after him, and like all his legs are splayed out. Yasuhiko doesn't go for just like overt gags all that much. That is fucking funny. Yeah, it's just such a throwaway moment to just get say, yeah, let's just like draw a Looney Tunes horse, basically. It's exactly, like that, that exactly. Is, and it's very funny. Oh, it's so good. All right. Anyway, um, I think we're mostly wrapping this up. Obviously, the we already sort of mentioned the, the death of the mother. Um, is there anything else to say about that scene other than, again, Yasuhiko's penchant for facial expressions is yes. at one of its peaks with all the looks on Char's face, Casval's face during this stretch. And I think the, the anime captures that really, really well. Yeah, that's like a really important moment because as we said earlier with like the night um, stuff is that there are those two moments where he has this just expression that you've never seen him have on his face. And with the night, it's like horror and terror. Here, it's this like deep sadness, like inflected with like furious anger, um, right? He's got the like note clenched in his fist um and that's that's this is one of those scenes where i think it's really important that this is like salo's pov that you don't see exactly like what castle went through when he received that news you you see it through like he has like processed it to some extent and it's come to give, deliver that news to Sela. um and you see that like the effect of it on him here through her eyes um and it like has completely devastated him uh, and yeah, it is. It is like a very striking panel in the manga, and they do a very good job in the anime of like letting that facial expression, and then also Shiji Kata's performance there just really sell how momentous this is for this character because this is the turning point that for like the last third of the episode is from this point on he is now the man who is like a drawn knife. He is the man who's like he is on edge. He's going to fucking kill people because he has turned at this point. Yes. I mean, let's talk about that scene where you keep using that phrase, draw a knife. That's from this scene where Tiabolo is talking to the principal of the school that Caswell is going to in town. And the principal is trying, he's trying to figure out how to say, this kid scares me, basically. Yeah. And the speech, this is from the subtitles, he says, well, he's a boy of very rare qualities, but he's cold. He's like a drawn knife. I can only hope he doesn't cause some great calamity in the future. Boy, that's the most prescient man in space, yeah. isn't it? Someone needs to listen to that principle, you know? It's yeah. Like he's, he's, he's got it. One thing I like about that, the phrase that they use in Japanese is Nukumi no knife, which, like, drawn knife is the way to do it. But it, it it's funny to me because there's, like, a running gag in Yakuza Zero 
um, where they use the exact same phrase to describe Majima, but like all these different characters are using that exact phrase word for word to describe him. I mean, it's like this running gag. And so when I encountered it here, um, because obviously the last time I watched Gun of the Origin, I hadn't played Yakuza Zero yet. Um, I found it very amusing. This like, yes, this is the exact thing. It's like, yeah, he's got eyes of a killer and he's so cold. He's a man like a drawn knife, which is such a great expression that is a, a, like existing expression in Japanese. It doesn't like, like Yusuke Yasiku didn't invent it, but it is one that like, I wish we had that phrase to describe people in English because it is so evocative. It like, it captures a certain kind of person so perfectly. Yeah, it's so good. There's, there's this reoccurring um, visual motif that this episode and the next one does it of people seeing Caswell's eyes mm-hmm. and something in it scaring them. And I love that idea. Then you, of course, get the big scene where they're in their silly Texas town and Caswell is eyeing the guy who's tailing, tailing them and he just picks a fight with him for no real reason. And breaks the you know pours the beer on his head smashes his hand i imagine just breaks it into pieces with Uh that fucking mug and then proceeds to beat the shit out of him you do see tiabolo like see the terror in the eyes that the principal was talking about he's gonna kill him with this fucking two by four with nails in it uh and sayla is the one who is able to stop him because she is really his only link to humanity and emotions at this point yeah and, and and as we said uh, earlier, this is where you feel that sense of Sale is the thing that is keeping him grounded to some reasonable degree of humanity, which is why, of course, he then abandons her um, because he, he wants to embrace this other side of himself. And yeah, you see the, the danger. You see him totally break. Um, and even in a way that is like very uncharacteristic of future, you know, of when he's actually become proper Shara's novel where he doesn't do this kind of thing while he does kill people he doesn't just sort of like beat the shit out of them and murder them in front of everybody else he slowly plots their death he probably doesn't even kill them himself he just gets them killed right he never kills Garmazabi he just orchestrates a scenario by which Garmazabi has no way to escape and has the white face basically do what Shara wants them to do for him um, and so this is like a moment where I think that's he learns that lesson here too. He learns to get away from Sela, and he also learns to like not to just let that thing explode out of him, but just hold it in super fucking tight, keep it in, and just step by step by step orchestrate the events that create the thing that he wants rather than just trying to brute force it in the world around him. More on that in the next episode. Yes. <laughs> we get yeah. a couple of them. Um Lucifer the cat. Yeah. I think maybe the actual saddest thing in the episode is we have Artesia slash Sela is given in episode one this cute, cartoon, wonderful little cat. And in the back of your mind, you're going, she doesn't have a cat in uh-huh. Gundam 79. It would be and a so, very old cat if she did have that cat. It would be. 79. <laughs> it would be. But um, Lucifer does pass away in this episode. And I think the moment that is like, just breaks your heart into pieces is when she is at the grave so they have the grave for their mother that cannot have her name on it and then she puts up a little grave for lucifer and she's sitting there and she says you must have left because mom was lonely Mm -hmm. and you went to keep her company and i think what it underlines is that you know sayla is also affected by all this loss she's affected by it just as much as char is but i think what it does to her is it 
brings out this inherent goodness in her over and over again where she chooses to see good things out of it not necessarily see good but like that is a she doesn't look at lucifer's death and go i'm abandoned i'm going to give in to every bad emotion i have she does lean into some kind of humanistic hope out of it and that's the kind of person who is going to be on side seven working as a doctor when all of this breaks out you know yeah, that she, yes, because we know that she becomes a doctor, that she was doing the nurse stuff at the beginning. So it's like she's using this as like fuels this kind of compassionate side of her. Um, and, and that she doesn't, that she has a, an ability to accept what is happening that Castle seems to lack, right? That, that yeah. it's very sad, but she can also like recognize and accept and come to terms with the reality of death. Like particularly with Lucifer, who just died of natural causes. Like it's, it's, foreshadowed throughout the episode that in the background lucifer like sneezes a couple of times he makes like a noise that is kind of funny that sayla laughs at but you know it's like oh he's an old cat it's probably like not actually good that he's making this weird kind of snoring noise he's not eating his dinner later um then when she comes back to the room he's just dead on the ground um and so it's she's able to sort of accept and come to terms with and work through that stuff as a thing that happens in the world and that you have to learn to live with whereas Char seems to just like refuse to accept it and is furious about it and is using it as an excuse to just sort of unleash his inner inner like turmoil on everything else around him yeah um the the last scene we've already talked about quite a bit the one line we didn't mention there is you know one line that yasuhiko in the manga adds from this scene that is in the anime is is artesia asking you know sort of to the air why is everyone leaving me Mm -hmm. and that is basically the arc of this episode for her is losing everyone around her that used to define her um there's a reason this one is called artesia's sorrow yes it's it's a fucking bummer. <laughs> it is a fucking bummer. That, that that would have been the other title, like either Artesia Sorrow or uh, this one's a fucking bummer. <laughs> Indeed, um, you know I will say just as a little preview, the next episode darker in some ways, quite a bit more fun. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's because it, it, this this is a great episode, but it's not always the most fun episode because it is the one you're like, oh fuck. I just don't, I don't want to see anything bad happen to this like twelve year old girl. She seems really she's very nice. She's very happy. She's got her cool little cat. She's got her hilarious gag pony. Like um, because also that like that's one of the other things about that scene that's it's so heartbreaking is she, you know the, because the whole sequence is of when Lucifer dies is that she's writing in her diary. She's writing about like everything that's happening. Char as novel comes home. She goes and has dinner and then she comes back and like her like sort of belief about all her beliefs about the world are like taken from her one by one her mother that she's writing her letters to um and then her cat that is like her only friend the the actual shara's novel that she seems to have like kind of been friendly with turns out to be this weird like army obsessed dick um like his behavior at that like dinner is so just off-putting um and upsetting and then her brother leaves her um, he's that he's that... that kid who like read the communist manifesto in high school and decided to make that his whole identity or something yeah. like just like yeah in the in exactly the wrong way you know yeah he he just he just thinks it would be really cool to be a soldier like and that's it and he's yeah. just like grasping onto the zeon and all that stuff he's got that line that i really like toshiko seki's delivery on it of like of 
the father says, oh, but we won't go to war. And he's like, well, maybe not right now, but in 10 years or maybe in even five. And he kind of leans in with like a wink. And the dad's like, fuck you, like, fuck you, kid. Like, is that why you want to be a soldier to go to war, you idiot? Um, yeah, it's 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 a, it's a bummer for for a sailor. Yeah. Anything else to say, Sean, about this week's episode? There is there is one um, notable thing that is cut from the manga because generally these first two episodes are really really close adaptations of the manga. But there is one yes. scene that I'm bummed that they cut, um, and it happens. It's immediately after um, Sayla's mother dies, and they get the news. And you get the, actually the beginning of it. There's a shot that they take of Sayla riding her horse, where she is able to gallop her horse, um, which was like the thing she was learning to do, um, kind of implying that time has passed. She's actually riding a proper horse. Um, and then she's accosted by a group of kids from the school that Castle goes to. That that's where you find out that Castle has been like um, basically beating up all the kids who are like not falling in line. Which you get a piece of dialogue from the principal to that effect. Um, but they kind of harass Sayla because of what her brother is doing, and Sayla just responds by slapping them in the face, and they ride away. And then Castle is up on the hill watching her. She calls out to him, Castle Nissan, and he just quietly turns around and rides away. And I'm kind of bummed that they cut that scene because it it gives you a good piece of context for Artesia's development into Sela because that's where you see for the first time this is like the Sela mass you know from Gundam who doesn't take shit from anybody who, you know, one of the first things you see Sela do in episode one of Mobile Gundam is she fucking slaps Kai across the face because he's being a dick. Um, and She gets and the first is, slap, not Captain Bright. Exactly. Sela mass, first slap in Gundam. Yeah, and this is like a scene where you see that and you kind of see that kind of development for her character as well as it, it foreshadows Castle leaving her, like he sees her there. I think that is a thing that gives him this kind of peace of mind to believe that she's going to be okay um, and that kind of the coolness with which he just very quietly walks away after watching her be like potentially attacked by these other kids for shit that he did um, and he doesn't step in in any way um, as opposed to his behavior at the beginning of the story. Uh, when she was sick like that contrast is really great in that scene and i i don't entirely understand why they decided to cut it other than, than maybe it was like a budget and time thing yeah i 100 percent agree it's a phenomenal scene i think the this the moment where she has the slap i'm looking at the panel right now her eyes that's sailor mass that's sailor yep. from gundam mm -hmm. 79 that's the first time you see it uh i 100 would have kept that scene if i were making this and and again who knows it you know these episodes all run a pretty similar length for the first four, at least. Um, but yeah, I and and one other note: I know the first slap in Gundam is actually Amuro slapping Frau. I don't need to comment on that, just in case. Um, <laughs> okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So just let's all be careful here. But yes, um, I would have kept that scene. It is. It's very good. Um, but overall, fantastic second episode. Yes. No. Yeah. It's great. And in general, I think like the main adaptational choice of straining this primarily to it being like Artesia in her point of view um, because I think one of the things that that scene does in the manga is that that is where she becomes Sela and then the manga then goes on to show the castle becoming Char and adopting Char's identity by getting the actual Char killed which is something that they move to the next episode um, because again this arc in the manga is called Char and Sela it's very much about those two characters getting to that point where they have adopted those two different identities um, but in general, I think this overall adaptational choice is very strong. Um, and the, the specifics of this story 
are phenomenal. Like the scenes with the knight in the castle, um, the way that they, uh, that Yusuke just kind of visualizes that transformation that Castle has around the grief of his mother. Um, it's just very well studied and very well observed around the characters and, and expressing that in a really exciting way for the story. Um, it's a banger of an episode, which is good. Basically, you can say about any of these, but it's definitely true of this one as well. Yeah. So next week, we'll be talking about part three, Dawn of Rebellion, which I'll just say now is one of my favorite Gundam things ever. <laughs> it is a good hour. It, yeah, it is uh, pretty fucking good. And we will talk about that next week, again, weekly, oh my god, on Weekly Suit Gundam. <laughs>